-hmm. And then that with Anakin, you know, kind of duplicating the Luke Skywalker role, but you see the echo of where it all is going to go. And instead mm -hmm. of destroying the Death Star, he destroys the ship that controls the robots. Again, it's like poetry, it's sort of they rhyme. Mm -hmm. Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. After almost a, a year, my supposedly loyal audience, the Inner Zone Asylum podcast, uh, how, whoever you are out there, you might be out there for all I know, but, you know, we're, we're back and we're talking about something uh, kind of different this time. It's still movie-related, but, you know, it's from a different angle, I would say. I'm joined again by Bretton Campbell. Uh, good to have you back, even after all this time, Bretton. How have you been? Uh, I've been doing great, yeah. It's great to be back. Yeah, almost a year since we've potted. It's it's awesome to come back and pot again, especially for such an interesting subject. Uh, it's such a unique idea for a podcast. I think, uh, a, a, like you were saying, sort of a fresh angle compared to what we've done before. I'm interested to dive in and share our opinions from the things we looked at today. Because I think we'll stand, like like you were saying before we started recording, you know, at similar positions. But uh, I'm curious uh, about all our shared takeaways of these different videos. Yeah, and just for those who don't know, uh, we're going to be talking about internet commentary on the Star Wars prequels, specifically uh, from the negative and the positive side. So... On the negative side, we're mostly talking about Red Letter Media's famous or infamous reviews as the Mr. Plinkett character picking apart those movies, which uh, you know, are some of the earliest uh, gospel-type film criticisms that made their way around when they were popular, mm -hmm. and some of the more uh, apologetic stuff that you could say brings excuse-making <laughs> to things but you know tries to you know make a case for the being a better quality or even masterpieces which and with with those they're rick warley's videos and stylus substances videos on the phantom menace exactly yeah which is interesting because i believe red letter media was like one of the first things we talked about like when we started being friends when we yes. were first in first year film class we discovered uh, that we had both, we were either watching them or we had even maybe stopped watching them at that point. But we've always sort of talked about them a little bit, even when we sort of fell off of watching them over the years. Yeah, I think to just give a brief history of us with Red Letter Media throwing Star Wars here too. With Red Letter Media, I think we were both fans of it when we first were friends during our first year of university. And mm. I think uh, as time grew on and we kind of started noticing the limits of their approach we started to uh, drift away and i don't think as far as i know i don't really watch them regularly i don't just discount them or anything but you know not the avid follower i once was yeah i, w I would say the same like i may be softer on them than i was when i first broke away with them which isn't to say that i'm a fan or anything or i regularly watch them by that i mean like like rick worley sort of says in the video like i like when they talk about stuff they're passionate about like i'll throw on a best of the worst sometimes or or maybe even a half in the bag or a review and, and often i'll have a good time but they're not something they're not in my regular youtube rotation kind of thing and just to talk about the Star Wars, um, our history of Star Wars, I mean, I grew up liking Star Wars as any boy probably did, but you know, as I've gotten older, um, I've kind of grew apart a little bit from Star Wars, but I was still a part of like the red letter media, kind of almost dogmatic hatred of the Star Wars prequels, which they helped, I would say, evoke for mm -hmm. a long time. 
and which arguably that attitude did very much lead to the Disney trilogy, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I th- my opinions on the original trilogy are different than some. I mean, there's a part of me that's kind of repulsed by the Joseph Campbell kind of stuff that mm. Lucas used to create the story, because one, Joseph Campbell, I hate it for two reasons. It's like, you can find these abstract, generic patterns across stories. doesn't mean you can give any specific insight into the stories themselves. And right. also, it, it can be a way for somebody to just like create a bunch of cardboard cutout characters and scenarios, but plug it into something and say they've tapped into some mythological resonance when it's just a real hacky uh, writer's way of not actually having to do the hard work of creating something of their own. Even though, like, I, I am repulsed by that, I, I can't deny the original Star Wars trilogy. The first film, especially, is just yeah, really fun at what it's do- what it's doing. Just a fun escapist riff on Flash Gordon. Also, and I'll say, The Empire Strikes Back, I think, does expand it into a little bit darker and richer territory, decently well. Mm-hmm. And then I think Return of the Jedi mostly botches. It. I don't think Return of the Jedi is that great. And the prequels, even though I used to hate them for a long time, I think now nowadays I've softened on that. And while the prequels are not great movies, I just say that up front, in a way do sort of deepen Star Wars on the whole in a positive way. Makes it a, takes it a little bit of step beyond the original trilogy, even if it's rather clumsy and clunky in its own way of doing that. So, I think I'm a little more balanced now than I used to be, which is for the good, I would say. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that as well. I'm sort of the same. I, I was I loved the prequels as a kid, hated them with a passion, you know, in high school, early university, and sort of came around to the position that you're at right now, where yeah, I think they're incredibly bizarre objects that deepen and complicate Star Wars in weird ways. They they're just bizarre formally too. Like it, the, the the ways in which those two videos talk about their connections to things like silent film. They just sort of look and feel and move unlike any other children's blockbuster film of that time period or any time period after, even though that's not necessarily always a good thing, like like you sort of alluded to. So I, I would say I appreciate them more than I enjoy watching them as films. I will say in general with Star Wars, I'm just kind of done with it. And I think yeah. the Disney saturation of it all really, really, really burnt me out on it. And it's a shame because I used to love it a lot. It, it was, you know, a franchise that was very dear to me. But I, I can't even really think or about or, or watch anything Star Wars related these days. Like the thought of watching one of those Disney Plus shows just like <laughs> fills me with nausea. I just can't do it. And I'm a little bummed about that, but that's life. I think also with the Disneyification and corporatization of so much stuff, because whatever you can say about Star Wars, the first six films very much are George Lucas's vision for good or ill. You know, he's an artist that very much works out of his own temperament and, and sensibility. And I mm-hmm. think that with the constant prequel bashing did lead to this vilification of George Lucas himself. And I think a lot of those people were happy to see his own creation handed over to to these corporate whores and eventually i think they even like the progressive like film twitter types i think have kind of uh, were part of that to an extent and so nowadays yeah. you see all these kind of like these people saying oh people don't get filmmakers like m night Shyamalan or Zack snyder like these people who make very mainstream stuff but have their own personal style and they get praised for it just because of the fact that they're making big movies that have like their own 
style, even if like mm-hmm. most people in the past said their movies weren't good. So it's almost like these people are embarrassed to the degree in which they bought into the whole Disney corporate program with both Star Wars and the MCU. And it's like they're overcorrecting by making that's apologetics a, for this stuff. That, that, that's an interesting read on it. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if that's true. Yeah, I've always thought it was some sort of overcompensation or backlash. Maybe an- another part of it, yeah, it's just sort of annoyance at being told by older millennials and Gen Xers that they couldn't like it kind of thing. That it, yeah. they had to think, like it was the doctrine of the internet, like you said, uh, sort of bolstered by things like Plinkett, uh, that, that, that they weren't allowed to like it. Now that vulgar tourism has been introduced onto film yeah. twitter like like a virus everywhere the floodgates are open and anybody can can reclaim anything and, and they're just going hog wild so it's an interesting time i think a lot of acclaims about those types of movies are are a little little suspect but uh, it, it's at least an interesting time to be on film twitter i suppose a lot of it i find to be there's something kind of glib and misplaced about or mm. inordinate about a lot of it but you know, at least people, I guess, are starting to form their own opinions. But at the same time, I don't think they do it in the way serious criticism should be done. Not that they're required to, but they certainly like to police people who criticize them before in that manner. Yeah, that, that That's a fair point, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it feels like fandom in a weird way, but in a more niche way. It's interesting. Weird phenomenon overall. I guess we'll kick off with the uh, Mr. Plankert reviews. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I, I can never do a Plankert. I'm going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> While I kill hookers and rape them. It's like, yeah, that's just one thing I should say. Man, the humor has not aged well oh, with the yeah, piece at all. I was going to say that, too, and it's not even like, I, and I totally understand that people are just repulsed or offended by it, but for me, it's not even personally that I'm offended by it. It's more that I'm just bored by it. Like, yeah. I just find it's, like, dead air. I don't even find it funny. Like, a lot of it isn't even jokes. It's just, like, the one joke is the fact that he's a murderer, and it's it's repeated ad nauseum through the, the entire Phantom Menace review for these extended sequences that are sometimes, like, multiple minutes long. It just completely halts the pace of the thing. Yeah, I know, like, Rick Worley tried to say that. It's, like, they threw that in just to pull back their audience's attention, and it really does feel like that. It's just the same kind of stupid edgelord humor that's like i remember Lindsay ellis one time said that you know she doesn't like red letter media because they're misogynist something along those lines but i mean i definitely can't understand with the humor in these videos but i think that's like the least of their problems when it comes to actual film analysis i agree yeah and i guess to give them credit like he does even start toning that down in the uh, revenge of the sith review i don't think there's any like real murder sequences or anything in that one. And I know his later Plankert reviews basically have none of that stuff. So I think he did sort of either realize that people didn't care about that stuff and they liked his film analysis enough for it to stand on its own, or he grew up and was like, uh, this is just edgelord bullshit and I'm going to put it behind me. But either way, at least they did that. You know, It's worse than Attack of the Clones review where like, at the end of every like section, there's like scrappy home footage of him and his kidnapped hooker. And it's just like, Nobody cares. Like, it's not even funny or relevant at all. Yeah, the conceit in that one, I think, is like he's using an old tape that keeps warping with old footage. And yeah, it's like constant. There's like old home video and stuff. Like, the bits where it's just like unrelated old home video, like old children's shows that suddenly cut into the footage, are almost more interesting stylistically than all all the, the hooker murder bullshit and stuff he puts in there. Either way, though, it's stupid. 
I guess we're just with that one out of the way, we can start with uh, the review that started it all. Uh, his mm-hmm. review, okay, let's just say, yeah, it's Mike Stoklasa playing the role of Mr. Plinkett in his epic, uh, I say epic just because of the length, review of yes. The Phantom Menace. I think he starts off, what does he say? He says, like, nothing in the movie makes any sense at all. Uh, Lucas had complete crap and nobody challenged him on anything. I think that's kind of how he starts off. And then he just moves into talking about the characterization in the film. Yes, yeah. He sta- yeah, he basically starts off, I guess, prepping the viewer to, to, to take his side right away, saying that everything in the movie is bullshit. And he sort of always cuts in these clips from the ba- making of documentary. Uh, I, I don't know how out of context they are, but it's, they sort of try to make it seem like Lucas was sort of just this tyrant and that everyone was silently but begrudgingly going along with him. And I, I don't know, I feel like it's a it's a weird and incredibly biased character portrait to draw that doesn't really have anything to do with the actual critiques. Like, you can critique the movie without saying Lucas was just this oafy dictator that forced everybody to go along with his vision and he was, like, fundamentally incompetent. Because I really don't think that's probably the case. No, and even those videos where he's trying to kind of spin that narrative, like, you can kind of just see from the footage and the way people talk in them like it that's not the case especially becomes worse near the end of this review where he's showing the footage from when they screened the rough cut of the phantom menace he's like they're fro like rick mccollum the producer who he always shows that clip of it's so dense every image has shown he shows that clip so many fucking times and you know he's like he's frozen in utter shock of how terrible the movie was it's like dude sure. it was it, like no it wasn't that it was a rough cut of the movie and they're talking about how they can maybe like trim some of the things that they don't think were working down but he makes it seem like that's like the movie like they knew the movie was dog shit and that they put it out anyway like that's kind of how he spins it but it's not accurate at all yeah i think but i believe it's a rick worley video where he talks about how you know you shouldn't say that lucas's films were saved in the edit or whatever when that's part of the process you know like that that was just the first step on the process to getting the movie out it obviously looked quite a bit different than the one in theaters did and he also just you know cuts to reaction shots that could have been from anything else it could have just been the guy being tired after sitting there watching what was probably you know a pretty long rough cut of the film in this tiny theater you know people just get tired it's just a little mean i find it mean for no reason he does that throughout all these these reviews just sort of spinning this narrative on george lucas himself but as if lucas himself doesn't even understand his own creation which i mean say what you want about lucas and some of his strengths or weaknesses i mean star wars is his baby yeah (laughs) i think think he has a pretty good understanding of what he's doing at least from an idea level yeah yeah like it like both the apologist videos say it just comes across as whining because it it wasn't mike still class's vision of what star wars prequels could be you know he didn't get what he wanted to be served Exactly, and I guess we can start with like where he talks about the characters. Well, first off, before he even gets to them, he goes on the spiel about how certain films like work better with this very like formulaic structure of like a down on his luck protagonist who wants to do something more. Then he has the call to adventure and gets the girl and solves the problem. I mean, some of it's valid to the sense that like that kind of formula can work in like a big blockbuster. And I mean, Star Wars is a big blockbuster, no matter what the apologists thought like to spin it as the work of an experimental, of a once experimental filmmaker. They still are blockbusters, no, uh, in just terms of their scope and appeal. But it's be one thing, like if you just saw this one video, it would seem like 
Mike Staclasa kind of has like a good idea what he's talking about. But then when you watch like red letter media videos in general, you find he's actually quite, how shall I say, like kind of very gauche when it comes to like other forms, how to present narrative. Like he's very like closed minded in terms of the kind of things he likes. Like the movies he likes are things like Ghostbusters and like Tremors and Back to the Future. Like these very like 80s, 90s schlock pop kind of movies, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think he liked like the first Jurassic reboot, like the Jurassic World or whatever. Yeah, yeah he just loves <laughs> things that are that are functional. And, it, and and yeah, he that stuff can be you know appealing and also very good. Like I would say, Back to the Future is. I, I'm not as much of a Ghostbusters fan as him, so I don't share his sentiment on that. But I I think Back to the Future is as about a perfect example of, of that sort of thing as you can get. But nonetheless, you know. You don't have to present a narrative in that way. He's just making up these arbitrary rules that would work for, you know, a screenwriting book on how to sell a screenplay that'll, you know, make money and get bought by Hollywood executives. But it doesn't necessarily mean every movie ever has to follow it. And clearly, George Lucas just wasn't interested in it. So it's kind of not a very interesting point at the end of the day. No, and he he tries to make it seem like that... Because, like, there's not, like, one clear identify like, character that's like that in The Phantom Menace that automatically means it's, like, a bad movie and that you can't, like, attach yourself to anything. Which is, like, just by the fact that that is the case, that doesn't follow, per se. Like, and we can go into how he talks about the characters and such, because while there may be something valid to what he's saying, like, I find the way he goes about it with him asking the other Red Letter Media crew, like, Jay Bauman and rich evans and jack picard card like i think they kind of are clearly biased as well especially when you know they're his friends yeah you you get the sense that they either immediately picked up on the slant he was trying to push and helped them a little bit or or you know he straight up told them the experiment he was running before he talked to them like that's always the impression i've gotten from it you know it'd be a more interesting point if he talked to random people on the street or something like that but even so i don't find it Super persuasive, except in the case of, like you said, talking about like broad appeal blockbusters, you know, how to make a blockbuster function. Obviously, people want easily identifiable traits in, in a movie like this, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the characters don't function for this story. To answer his question, I think like Qui-Gon Jinn is like the closest thing the Phantom Menace has to a main character. You know, it's, even though it's clear that, like, Anakin Skywalker is the overarching protagonist of the saga. And, you know, he, he complains that the audience doesn't meet Anakin until, like, 30 minutes into the movie. But, again, that's not, like, a problem in itself. That's the same thing with Fargo, the, the Coen brothers' Fargo. They do the same thing with Margie, the sheriff, and that. And nobody complains right. in that film. No, yeah, because I guess it's just accepted that they're auteurs or whatever, and because Lucas makes kids' films, you know, he can't he can't have a vision that deviates from the norm, at least which according is, to Mike, I guess. Which is odd, because, like, Luke, have you seen Lucas's first two films, THX and uh, American Graffiti? No, but I really want to. Like, I've always been meaning to, but I haven't. I, I really like THX a lot, and uh, American Graffiti, I, I only saw once, so it's not a film, like, I have a strong opinion of, but... THX is very much in line with like a dystopian, like cerebral sci-fi art film. It's very slow moving and sort of cerebral and has kind of a very almost like abstracted like approach to its presentation, to its visual presentation. Like it's very stark, austere in a way that's quite interesting. It's just an excellent sci-fi film. And American Graffiti, you know, is a very loosely structured kind of observational 
you know, coming of age story, and it's not like a film that's bound by like three act structure, A to B plotting. So I mean, Lucas clearly has like deviated from traditional norms yeah. <laughs> before. That's how he started out. So that's that's where he was from, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's very bizarre that he has these expectations for him. I, I guess it's probably because you know he watched Star Wars in the theaters as a child or whatever. But you know, you, you got to take a director's entire body of work into consideration when thinking about you know what his goals are and what his sensibilities are and things like that. And Mike Stoklasa doesn't even like THX or American Graffiti. Oh, and, really? And he thinks George Lucas is a hack from the beginning. Oh, I, I, did he mention that in the Plank interview? Because I don't remember him saying he didn't like them, but that's that's interesting. I didn't know. No, it was in the video where he was talking to that guy who made the documentary The People versus George Lucas. Yeah. Which is just that, you know, a 90-minute bitch and wine fest from people very yeah. much like Mike Stoklasa. But anyway. Yeah, I hated that fucking documentary. I remember that now. Back to the review, as <laughs> as you would say. Yeah, so we've got the part where he asks his friends, you know, Jay, Rich, Jack. I forget there's that woman there who is not in any recent video, so I can't remember her name. But you know, he asks he them to describe, you know, the Star Wars characters just on their personality level. You know, like they describe Han Solo and C-3PO pretty accurately, you know, because the original trilogy characters are very much archetypes with these very apparent identifiable traits. And when they get to Qui-Gon Jinn, they can't even, like, form a single thing to characterize him as. Like, one says he's stern and has a beard. Yeah, he may not have, like, the charisma of, like, some of the characters in the old trilogy, but I think he can do a better job of characterizing him in his role than that. <laughs> Yeah, I th they seem to purposely be not reaching for anything in the same way they were reaching for the other characters. Like like the second apologetics video says, he 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 provides a good contrast with Obi Wan in that he's he's sort of more interested in in momentary concerns like present concerns, and he's less interested in in the council and their ideals. He's more of an independent thinker, and he's also kind of a stoic. Like and, and those are borne out, you know, through his actions throughout the entire film. Like it's it's pretty obvious character through action and decision making like a you know just it's not not a description of his moment-to-moment -moment mood like you know just because he did he, did, he doesn't uh, have violent emotional mood swings that doesn't mean he doesn't have a, a defined character sort of thing yeah he's supposed to be kind of like the ideal jedi like in a way which is very much what style is substance says because he's like very much in tune with the esoteric aspects of the force but he's not so dogmatic the way the jedi council has become and so like it would make sense that he would be the right one to have trained anakin instead of obi-wan because because of anakin's own unconventionality yeah exactly yeah i, li I, I liked that entire section on, on qui-gon from that video i guess that's skipping ahead but yeah for sure it's not to say that makes him like a great character in the sense that like you know he stands out so individually but because like you know the wise mentor is still like an archetype that's exists in a lot of things but like again like we can just describe him like that that like, took less than a minute that's way more than what red, the red letter media crew even bothered with yeah yeah they could have at least put it in effort and the same thing with padme amidala or queen amidala just in the phantom menace i think even rich it's rich evans who's like that's fucking impossible because she doesn't have a character but you know we can tell she's at least like a passionate believer in democracy and cares for her people and but is also kind of curious and naive about the world she's not exposed to. 
Yeah, exactly. Like it, it, that repression and sort of uh, stoicness it, it is kind of a, a defining part of her character in that, you know, she's, what, 14 or something in that movie and she's been thrust into this position of representing a planet that's under siege, but she's still, despite that stoicness, which sort of re reflects her intelligence, you know, and resourcefulness, she still has this like sort of childlike curiosity about the world, like you said, that sort of bubbles up under the stoic surface. So there's a nice kind of contrast there. I don't know. Sometimes things can be intentional. Just because she's she's sort of stoic doesn't mean that the character's bad. It just means that George Lucas wanted her to be stoic. Like I don't think she's a bad actress or he's a bad director in that sense. You know, I think it was purposeful. Like as like the queen and ruler, she's supposed to be putting on kind of this stoic mask, but we know she is like this very you know empathic, sensitive person and underneath mm -hmm. it. And that's not to say like I think again I don't think Natalie Portman's a bad actress, and I don't think George. I think most people know Lucas isn't the best director of actors, period. So, like, not everything in it, like, Nick can fully land in this sense, but I don't think it's just, like, Lucas was just there and then she just wouldn't leave read her lines because they didn't know what they were doing. There's some intention behind it, at least. Yeah, yeah, he, he does have these broad personality types like Jarger. Like, if he wanted her to have a more color colorful personality, he would have done it, and it would have come through, even if it might have been awkward or something like that. And I think he makes a good point when he says, like, even though Ewan McGregor, who for some reason he calls him Ewan McDonald, just as part of Plinkett's annoying uh, yeah. intentional mispronunciations or misnaming. Yeah, it does that a lot, yeah. He says, like, he was good casting, and I agree that he was one of the best performances in the prequels is Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan, but that he wasn't developed very much in The Phantom Menace, and I think that's a good point. Like, he's not, he doesn't drive much of the action, he's just sort of there in a lot of ways, and well, there is, like, the characterization of him being this more, like, conservative-type Jedi as opposed to Qui-Gon. Even that, like, contrast could, I think, have been fleshed out a little bit, little bit more. Yeah, I think it, it could do for, like, one or two more conversations between them or something like that. Or, or Obi-Wan needed to actually engage individually with the world he encountered more because, you know, you get the feeling he hasn't been out much. He's only an apprentice. You'd think, you know, he'd have more scenes that would show him reacting to, to Tatooine or Naboo or whatnot, and maybe that would inform his conservative nature or, you know, challenge it or, or affirm it or something like that. Like, he, yeah, he, he very much kind of floats through the movie in a way, which again feels intentional in contrast to Qui-Gon, but it, it's, it's very thankless. He has a very thankless job this time. Like, you know, he can make good points in these reviews, but... Sure. It's almost, but the problem is, is like when you give somebody a good, a long enough span of time, they're gonna come across something good rather <laughs> than their innate abilities. That that seems really mean to to Mike. Stavosa, no, I guess, but uh, no, I get what you mean, especially like the machine gun fire of of plot nitpicks that come down the pipe later. He he very much just like he likes pelting these movies with with criticisms, even though some of them are sort of nonsensical or pointless or whatever. And sometimes they're okay, but it's it's very much like a broken clock type of situation. Then he gets right into the plot stuff with after the character section. He spends a good time. Like, there's a lot of reviews that spend so much time like nitpicking the Trade Federation stuff when it's really not that hard to understand. There is just these taxes that the Trade Federation is protesting by blockading Naboo, and Palpatine is just using their kind of craven greed as a means to advance his own power. Like, it's not that hard to comprehend, but he just goes on and on about. In him not understanding what they were protesting for, and it's clearly just a plot MacGuffin to get it rolling, you know? 
Yeah, even if it was like a bit nonsensical, it wouldn't make a difference because like you said, it's a fuel for the engine of the rest of the plot. But it's fairly easy to understand. And and I especially don't get criticisms that that people don't understand why they go along with him. Not not to get too, too annoying on this podcast, but, you know, we see the lengths, you know, pure craving sort of capitalist greed can can drive people to in, in the real world you, when that scales indefinitely into you know the, the system of of galactic governments and infinite resources on different planets and infinite technology you know there's also going to be infinite greed you know an infinite desire to to acquire more resources and, and subjugate more things so so i think it kind of you know makes sense that they could sink to those depths you know blockading a planet trusting this this evil lizard man as long as it would mean you know acquiring more resources for themselves like it it, it always scanned to me and I, n- I never thought it was dumb at all I, I don't really understand those criticisms either no and i guess like people like are just say i don't want to go to star wars to see like an opening crawl talk about the taxation of trade routes from the federation and i mean I get what you mean. Like, the original trilogy are not a particularly politically complex series, whereas the prequels attempt to be. But again, it's not, like, hard to to grasp that they're just... This illegal... This corporation is just doing something out of greed and that, you know, it's just used as a way for another sort of evil politician to advance his own agenda. Like, it's pretty obvious to follow, really. Yeah, even as a kid, I feel like I understood it fine, and I feel like people are just trying to look into it and and find, you know, holes that aren't really there. Just one thing I want to wonder, does the the Trade Federation know that Darth Sidious is Palpatine? Ooh. That that's a good question. Yeah, I've I've wondered that myself. Do they do they sort of mutually have dirt on each other kind of thing like there's mutual leverage there you know i guess that would make sense in terms of that you know that would give them extra reason to trust him because they know he has connections and things like that i don't don't know if that's ever fully clarified i think he says like you know he's got sway in the senate but you know i don't know if he ever clarifies to them that that's his identity but which would seem odd because i mean he is just wearing a fucking hood (laughs) you know i guess that just speaks to the kind of psychological reality of these movies but you kind of have to accept with star wars to be honest exactly you just got to accept that they had some reason to to think he was legit before the movie started like we don't have to see that it's such a minor part of the plot it's such a minor thread that we don't have to see why they trust him like how they met what circumstances led them to make this deal we just know they made that deal and that's the reality of the movie yeah. well even like what before he even gets into that stoclasa just goes on about like Oh, it's so boring. The opening, the ship lands, and they go to drink tea. This movie is so boring. Like, that's his, like, criticism right off the bat. It's like, okay, like, yeah, it doesn't automatically start off with, like, you know, the starship, like, in A New Hope, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have to, and it gets to the action pretty fast-paced, too. And even, like, when he goes on, it's like, oh, the film language, of which George Lucas might not have had to do anything with, communicates everything. It's like, well, yeah, there was still fucking dialogue dialogue that explained it mike <laughs> yeah it doesn't see 3 po literally like give exposition not like as soon as it cuts to the ship i'm pretty sure he says like oh we're with princess leia and we got yeah. these plans blah blah so yeah it's still it still happens anyway and even so it's another case of him like taking this one good thing that a film did and applying it generally you know this film had immediate visual storytelling in that specific manner so every film does including this other star wars movie and because it doesn't it's bad 
Like, no, it's just doing a different thing. Like, calm the yeah. fuck down. Yeah, that's like literally like the opening crawl just ended and he's complaining about there not being action. But yet he complains about the action in the films constantly. Like, the movies are about shoving as much shit on the screen as possible. That's one of his, his complaints. And, and But it's just silly to me that like to, compl- to simultaneously like say that it's boring, but then like go on about the extended action sequences. Like, it just feels dumb to me that he's complaining that people like the spectacle of the prequels like as if the star wars has never been about spectacle in one way or another yeah yeah he doesn't seem to understand the the true nature of the thing he likes it's another case of adults i don't think fully understanding the target audience of the original trilogy yeah it's like he acts like as if the original trilogy is some kind of like super character based drama which it is not <laughs> the the prequels actually no. are, a, are a more sprawling ambitious story doesn't mean they're executed better but he doesn't even seem to kind of get that that's kind of what they're going for yeah exactly i guess like what are the plot details he he picks a he tries to pick that like with palpatine okay. wanting padme to sign the treaty you know to like make the invasion legal when it's kind of clear that he just wants the Trade Federation to do something look to look bad to make to have like this vote of no confidence. But I agree that why the hell is he sending Darth Maul to kidnap Padme if that's what if that's, that's what the case is? Yeah, that's that that's a fair point. But yeah, overall, there's there's like this whole string of nitpicks about the logistics of, of Palpatine's plan that just don't don't make sense or or yeah, easily solvable or dismissed away. Like yeah, like you said that they're, they're, he's trying to get them to do something something bad like obviously it wouldn't be a good legitimate binding treaty if she was forced at gunpoint to sign it but it's not supposed to be that's not how it's depicted in the plot like it's very i i I found that one particularly bizarre out of all the nitpicks that are in this first review which there's a fucking ton of like there's so many like (laughs) basically like it's almost 50 percent of that is that but uh yeah that's one one of the most bizarre ones like Oh, it, it wouldn't be a legitimate treaty if if she signed it when she was captured. <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah, a, but, a plot hole. Or like he says, like he acts like as if she all of a sudden signed the treaty, they wouldn't invade the planet. Like they've already fucking invaded the planet, and they're signing the treaty to invade it further. The fuck are you talking? It's like what the fuck are you talking about? You don't know. You don't know how this works. <laughs> yeah, I always thought thought it was it was more like an admission of surrender than anything, more than more than a treaty, you know. He, he, like, makes up this problem where, like, the Naboo is, like, dying because they're not getting space supplies. And he points to, like, that power reactor that they fight Darth Maul in later. Like, how could oh, they have God. built that and they're dying without space supplies? Like, no, the issue is not that they're getting not getting space supplies. is that their planet's been fucking invaded and blockaded. Like, that's just kind of a bad thing period yeah they're, they're being separated and put into camps if if what the battle droids say is any indication like it's not just the lack of supplies or power or whatnot like they're sort of being rounded up <laughs> like this the streets are empty <laughs> like it's kind of a big deal regardless of the the material situation yeah it's very strange the the, the power reactor criticism in particular was when i really rolled my eyes like why do they have this big reactor 
what is it for? How do they build it? Like, who fucking cares, you piece of shit? <laughs> you fucker. <laughs> it's just, it's like, what does it power? The universe? Why the fuck do these people care about getting invaded? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> Bad, they're because they don't want to live in internment camps? <laughs> yeah. Being controlled by a fucking corporation? Like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, he's just making problems that don't exist. Yeah, it's it's another case. It's, it's just people want to feel smarter than movies a lot of the time. You know, they want to they they treat it as a, a, a challenge. You know, they gotta outsmart the film, and he's just trying to solve it like you solve a puzzle. But it, it's just a really miserable, annoying way to to look at film, in my opinion. I think some of the worst comes up pretty soon is when he starts nitpicking when the Trade Federation decides to kill the Jedi on Palpatine's orders, but. He just goes on as like, put the rat poison in the tea. Wait, why can he know the ga- the name of the gas before he smells it? And all, all these like really dumb nit- nitpicks. It's like, okay, they're just trying to poison them and then cover up that they never got there. Like, yeah, well, why would it matter if they didn't use the most efficient method to poison him? Like, how does it matter? Like, when people talk like this, I just stand back and I'm like. Why does that matter? Like, how does that affect your enjoyment of the film? Does it really? Does it honestly? Or do you just want it to affect the enjoyment uh, of the film? Like, do you want to feel like it's a problem? I don't understand. Oh, and I mean, it just, it's there. Like, they try to kill them, they fail, and then the Jedi are on their way. Like, that's kind of the, it's just all that's needed. And, like, you don't need to nitpick how that goes about, because it's just perfunctory stuff. Yeah, it's it's re- it really doesn't matter at all. And then he's like, uh, "Why don't? Th- why are they landing on others? Se- why are they separating? Why don't they just fight all the battle droids?" Like, is that really something you suggested to write this scene to just have them fight the entire army of invading battle droids? Like, <laughs> yeah, fight, fight the droid army. I, I don't understand that either. Cause, wait, what does he say? Like, it would re- increase their chances of getting caught or something like that if they oh he, he separated, he said- but. Yeah, he says, like, increase the chances of getting caught by 100%, when it's like, that doesn't even track, like, they're separated. No! It can be a a little more, uh, you know, inconspicuous on their own. Yeah, it doesn't, well, doesn't it increase the chance of one of them getting away and communicating with the Senate by 100%? Because if one of them gets caught, the other one will still be, they're both, either going to both get captured together, if they're together, they're both going to get away, but if they separate, there's a possibility that one of them could escape while one of them is captured, and then they contact the Senate. It doesn't even fucking make sense by his own bullshit logic problem. And then he goes on to complain, he's like, uh... Uh, create the communications blackout, which again is such a like a minor thing. It's just so they can't talk to the Senate. He's like, it could mean you idiots just didn't pay your phone bill. Somehow you assholes know are an experts in interplanetary invasion. It's like what the f- like what the fuck kind of point is that? And it's also <laughs> he he complains about like the Senate hearings. It's like no Palpatine and the Trade Federation were just trying to block the word getting back to the senate the senate like doesn't know and it's very clearly said there are bureaucrats who are on the payroll of the trade federation and that's why they're so like ineffectual like it's just stuff that's in dialogue that he just breezes past and just calls lifeless and boring yeah yeah he he doesn't even really seem to fully absorb the plot of the movie which is which is ironic given how much he tries to nitpick it like he doesn't he doesn't seem interested in even trying to like it do like you don't get the sense that there's any world where where he would be swayed by any of it or even give it a, a fair chance like he, he he's coming at it with with a pretty 
poisonous attitude of, of you know, deciding he's going to pull it apart from the outset, regardless of what the movie actually says. Yeah, and I mean, you know, critique something all you want, and I think we'll have our own critiques when we talk about some of the apologetics videos, but I mean, you got to still engage mm-hmm. with what a movie's trying to do on its own terms and yes. in assessing it from there, but he doesn't even, like you said, it's like he's not even willing to attempt to do that. No, yeah, exactly. Like, it, it's just uh, the kind of criticism I I find pretty worthless. There's just another just long, long strain of nitpicks of him being like, you know, they're making shit up to the Gungans about them being invaded and attacked when they don't know jack shit. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're illegally invading a planet, dude. Like, I think he assumes that the Naboo's being attacked. And, and then it's like when yeah, they try... Like the- <laughs> They attempt to run the blockade, and then it's just like the characters are just saying, "Oh shit, the the generator's been hit." Oh great, we're going to be sitting ducks. He's like, "Hey assholes, none of what you say makes any sense." But it's just like the most obvious dialogue, like you would write in a tense scene like that. And yeah, it's it's not even like there's no even any problems in the scene. Like I don't even know what he's even like going on about at all with that. No, yeah. It's it's just bizarre. Like, it, I feel like you could have a better time critiquing like the the macro structure of Phantom Menace. It's a weirdly structured film that kind of I feel like maybe loses momentum at points. But but he seems so focused on these like microscopic details that just don't matter at all. I would say like the bigger problem with the Phantom Menace and maybe the prequels in general is that you kind of feel like there's like this big plot outline and that everything is just kind of dictated to that ultimate outcome. And it almost feels like the way to get there feels kind of mechanical and like how it develops. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a very sort of deterministic and, and fatalistic kind of experience, which I guess is, is somewhat the point. But nonetheless, as an experience, you're right. It, it feels yeah. like moving pieces on a, on a chessboard or something like that. Yeah, it a lot of it doesn't feel fully felt in a way it kind of has what you call a bit like franchise film syndrome where it's like especially when it's not the start or the end where it's like it assumes the viewer already knows and cares about the ongoing mythos so that like actual things like plot and character development just kind of take a back seat to to this other stuff yeah yeah it, it, it's almost like uh to, not to riff on the meme but it's almost purely concerned with itself as a kind of visual poem like uh, creating these counterpoints to the original series and acting as as, as a sort of component to, to those plot elements completing the entire piece but uh, moment to moment it just feels a little hollow it rings a little rings a little false We'll get to that, to talking about that when we get to the apologetics videos, but, I mean, I know, like, Staclasso, with his fucking, uh, you know, with his use of the behind the scenes, turned that whole thing into a meme of Lucas, like, you know, being like, oh, it's like poetry, sort of, they rhyme, you know, like, each stanza kind of rhymes with the last, but he just, like, calls him stupid for even thinking that. Yeah. I don't understand, like, why Lucas trying to create these kind of poetic rhymes and rhythms uh visual or narrative or thematic is in and of itself bad if anything that's like kind of shows at least the level of artistry he's attempting yeah i don't get it either like it's especially impressive when you consider you know it's six 
massive expensive movies of the over the course of many decades it's it's pretty bizarre and impressive to uh you know of an undertaking but but i guess it's just because the quote in isolation sounds kind of funny you know it's easy to me bomb because it's just it just sounds in, inherently silly as a soundbite but i i think you're right if you if you divorce it from the context of a blinker review it, i don't see what's wrong with that sentiment at all especially because it was just like casual conversation you know outlining a manifesto he was just talking to a co-worker yeah it's clearly he was just casual he's like you know stanzas kind of rhyme with each other hopefully what i'm doing is going to work like that's the whole thing he says but he doesn't even include that yeah, last little bit yeah exactly like it's literally just a, a casual conversation out of context that he takes as like lucas's grand uh, singular vision you know it takes it as his main artistic statement it's kind of annoying and mean some of the points he makes like where he says like why would the queen thank a droid for fixing something or why would the queen ask why to not? be sent off to do a meal task like that but i feel like it's just such minor things that they're not even worth talking about in the grand yeah. scheme of things and maybe she would want to do it because she's 14 yeah <laughs> like that, that that could be part of her character but of course that can't be part of her character because we know from the first section of course she has no character that that's a fact we know going in so we have to not read it as a character moment because obviously but i don't know i think she just thinks to droid and wants to go down to do stuff because she has an, a whimsical adventurous side because she's a, a kid <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah like I, I mean, like you gave like a decent defense of it. I'm saying, like from his perspective, I can kind of see oh, how yeah, it, yeah. it, it can you. come off across like a contrivance. But even it just coming across like a contrivance, like it's a pretty infinitesimal level contrivance. Like it's not something we're spending like a minute on, which he does. Yeah, yeah, for, for, for real. Yeah, he takes so long on these uh, for no reason. I, I, I don't get why he made this video so long, especially because. This was before the age where all these videos were so long. You know, he was the progenitor of this. I don't understand what, what his impulse was here. And what gets worse is that when he says he calls Qui-Gon Jinn the Phantom Menace, uh, unironically, he says, like, he's the devil in the details of this film. But he doesn't even understand what the fucking title even means, even though it's, like, very fucking obvious what it means. Is that, like, it seems like it's, this is peacetime and there's a straightforward conflict, but there's an unseen shadow player uh, lurking beneath it. Like, that's very obviously the point of the title, and he doesn't even... He just says it's like a joke. Yeah, and speaking of the title, too, that they talk about it in a couple of the other videos later. I don't get why people were upset at the title when the movie was released. Like, I'm too young to remember... You know, the release of Phantom Menace. I only remember Revenge of the Sith, and I think a bit of clones coming out, but I, I don't understand why people were upset at the Phantom Menace. Like, it sounds pretty Star Wars y to me. I don't get what the big hoopla was about that. Like the other said, it's a, just a very serial kind of title. So it's just that pulpy yeah. serial title, which, I mean, The Empire Strikes Back, that's very much a serial title attack of the clones is also a very serial type title but I, I don't know it's just people grasping at straws for like no reason yeah but stupid but anyway he, he when he called when he goes on about qui-gon he's like qui-gon should have been and obi-wan should have been combined into a character called obi-wan kenobi if you had to have Qui-Gon, uh, he should have just been there being wise. And then when he dies, uh, Obi-Wan's left to move on without a wiser voice of reason. Thus setting the stage for Anakin's portraying. It's like, that's literally what the fucking... That's yeah. literally what the, what's fucking happens in the film. <laughs> yeah. 
that that's the problem yeah with a lot of his criticisms there are other things you know that are already taken care of or the things that are you know the literal textual point of the film you know like his proposed solutions are just like the the movie is just functioning as intended he he doesn't seem to understand how the film actually functions yeah and then like a lot of this stuff gets really bad with his nitpicky stuff and about Qui-Gon and, and when they go to Mos Eisley when they meet Anakin when he's like why aren't they trying out larger dealers it's like he swiftly says he wants to try the smaller dealers to not draw t- attention to themselves or and then he goes on about him using like he's like he criticizes Qui-Gon's questionable moral values when he's using like Jedi mind tricks on Boss Nass or Watto when it's like Clearly minor things that, uh, you know, the situation could require something like that, but he acts like he's this morally bankrupt character just because of these minor he, things. Yeah, he's just kind of a sigma. He's just kind of a free thinker. Like, that's, that is his character. And, but, but I guess it's not because he can't have a character. Again, like, he, he, he assumes they have no character, and then when they do things that have character, he says they're nitpicks or... Or you know, either plot holes or the contrivances or they're illogical. Like, it's very, it's very weird. The worst of that is when he he claims he's confused when Qui Gon makes the deal with Watto that will free Anakin. Like he just plays this fucking annoying music in the background and constantly edits the shots together to make it seem like <laughs> it's this really convoluted bit. And, like, I can't even follow his own logic of trying to piece it together by his own editing. It's just this really bizarre thing. Yeah, that, that kind of lost me. A lot, a lot of times in this review, I was, I was just <laughs> struggling to maintain attention to the review. Yeah, well, what was he even saying? I couldn't follow that. It, it seems fine to me. If- I think he's just saying that, like, at first they make a deal to something where Watto says, like, Anakin smashed up my pod the last the last race, but then oh, Qui-Gon's like, we have a pod, when really he's just covering up that Anakin built the pod, but Qui-Gon's saying, I'll just supply him. Like, that's the most convoluted it is. Like, Yeah, that's not even convoluted. Like, yeah, I don't get it. But what, what, is the, yeah. what is the problem? <laughs> and this goes on for like two fucking minutes. That, that's like the worst part with this annoying music playing in the background to make it seem like it's this overly convoluted thing. And it's just, yeah. this is really grating. Yeah, a lot of this review is created in the in post, g- oh, yeah. giving mistaken impressions through the edit. It was uh, it was saved in the editing, you know. This, this <laughs> yeah, whole review, yeah, yeah uh, it was Jay. He he, Jay edited it. Makes this whole section like number ten, Anakin Skywalker, and he just says like Anakin can't act or something. Which, I mean, I agree, Jake Lloyd's delivery and stuff is kind of, like, stiff and a little bland. But, again, like, the whole notion of, like, starting off Anakin as, like, a little kid is a totally fine idea in and of itself. I agree, it could have been executed better, but he doesn't even, like, spend that much time on it. Then he goes to, like, he goes when they get to Coruscant, and then he just says, Every scene is boring, and, like, just skips over the whole political talk. And then he claims that Lucas ruined Star Wars forever with the midichlorians explanation. I don't. I've never really got. I don't like midichlorians, but I. I don't. I've never really got the idea that it ruined Star Wars. No, like I agree. It's not like a necessary idea, but all it is, they're. He explains it that they're like like you know microscopic life forms that interact with living things and kind of communicate about the force uh he doesn't say that midi chlorines 
are what the force is. But I think like everybody yeah. like everybody seems to take it like that for some reason. Yeah, you're you're right about that. Yeah, I think that's always been the disconnect for me because uh, I never understood why you know why people are pissed. But I think you're right in that people think th- what he's saying is that the force is scientific. You know, it's a purely scientific or rational phenomenon, which it's not. Like, yeah, it's just you know that they're the mini chlorians are the the means by which people access the force kind of thing. And it's just kind of the broader idea of the force that like everything kind of has a life or significance. Like that's kind of the broadest idea of the force in a spiritual sense. Yeah, it's just sense. animism kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. After that, I think a lot. there's a lot more nitpicky about the battle plan Yeah. near the end. Not even worth talking about. No, he. I think like most of the rest of the Phantom one is like nitpicks because he nitpicks about the Senate stuff, like the Coruscant stuff, and he nitpicks again about like the final battle, like why is there a a, a kid size helmet in the uh, cockpit, yeah. etc. Like I, I don't remember much. Like I, I should have taken notes. I only took notes starting at, at the Revenge of the Sith, but I, I don't remember a lot of like non nitpicking shit after that point. Some of it's strange, like because. The first time we see Queen Amidala or Padme when she's you know in the the full makeup, you know she's he plays a clip of her saying like you know I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. And then you know it's like he just juxtaposes that with them fighting later on. And he's like he's acting like as if this is like poor writing. But it's like dude, so much stuff has happened in between, and she's clearly been like conflicted about this the whole movie, and he acts like it's just inconsistent writing. Yeah, like a, a sort of purely pacifist ideal sort of came into contact with the reality of Tatooine. You know, that was before she went to Tatooine and saw the slaves, and you know, yeah. the idea that the, the Senate doesn't have full reach over everything kind of thing, and that people need to sort of fight for themselves or stand up for themselves like you know she clearly has a bit of a turn there after going through all those experiences but yeah exactly now that she's like actually more exposed to the reality of things uh, outside exactly of yeah, yeah yeah and i guess like he just talks about like how we're not terribly invested in the fight with darth maul which i mean i, I guess it's like a fair point in the sense that it's not as emotionally investing as say the fights in the original trilogy which i i would agree with but mm-hmm. he doesn't even get that like the kind of the whole point of it is that about the fate of anakin basically if both of them die who's anakin gonna gonna be with especially since it's qui-gon that dies that really sets the stage for anakin's training by a reluctant more reluctant obi-wan yeah, yeah, it's 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 not like so much a, a, an ideological conflict between them and Maul. Like he's he's an external threat. Like one of the apologist videos says, he's he's sort of demonic. Like he's just a demonic presence interfering uh, on you know their lives and their ideals, which they want to impose on, onto Anakin. You know, and it's and it's like you said, it's it's about the fate of that kid and the and, and you know who's going to train him and, and impose their ideals on him and what kind of environment he's going to grow up in. Yeah, and Maul is very much just a symbol. Like, he's not really much of a uh, character, I agree. Which one of the Apologist videos very much struggles. You can see him, them kind of grasping at straws to describe Darth Maul. I'm not saying that's, yeah. like, in and of itself a bad thing. Because, I mean, the whole devil, demonic kind of thing. Like, he's clearly meant to be more of a symbol than, than anything else. 
And then he goes on about, like, how the fight choreography, complaining that, like, why are the Jedi so darn experienced at sword fighting and fighting Darth Maul? It's like, maybe because they're fucking trained to use lightsabers, man. <laughs> yeah, and maybe maybe because it also just looks cool. I don't know. I just, I, I guess that's a that's an American problem, too, this reticence to, for, for, to, to sort of just get into fight scenes that are cool for purely aesthetic reasons. Like, I, I like a lot of Hong Kong action movies, which just have a lot of fight scenes that are just cool. And, and use you know geography and, and different weapons in different situations for their own sort of aesthetic merit kind of thing not that they don't have you know good characters a lot of the time and ideological conflicts but like it, it's like a dance at the end of the day it's just, it's just impressive purely on a physical level like you can just admire it in that sense like there's nothing really anti-intellectual or, or, or you know generally wrong with that kind of thing no absolutely I mean I think even John Woo, you know, just one of the big makers of those kinds of movies, says he views action scenes and like shootout stuff as like musical or dance numbers in films. Like mm -hmm. there's just some, there's just, he just appreciates the level of artistry and like craft you can just put into those sequences. And I think the fight scenes in the prequels, specifically the Darth Maul fight, just do have some of those qualities, even if like, you know, you may not be always invested. There's just an aesthetic quality that's kind of cool to them. Yeah, I agree. I, I I like almost all of them, for sure. He goes on when he's like, Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon, and then he's he compares it to when Luke he was fighting against Vader in Return of the Jedi, when Luke just snapped when Vader was taunting him. And he says, like, why doesn't Obi-Wan do that against Darth Maul? Well, it's like, one thing, it's like a very different scenario, like... Darth Maul is this super confident, like, warrior, and Obi-Wan is, yeah. like, an older Padawan. Like, it makes sense he's not just gonna wail on Darth Maul and win. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it, that's that's bizarre. Like, it, especially because we know he's more reserved, too, you know, from the, the entire rest of the movie. That's what the entire rest of the movie has told us. He's not gonna snap, like like luca on vader and you know like you said he's he's basically a young kid going against this demon with with a double-bladed lightsaber who just slaughtered his master like that's got to be kind of spooky you know it, it yeah. doesn't make sense it's stupid and i mean he he is clearly angry like just in the fight he clearly uses anger against maul but i mean it doesn't entirely work it's just not in the same way as luke because it's not the same character and it's not the same scenario you know it's just yeah i, I always thought him like slicing apart darth maul's double-bladed lightsaber was pretty angry i always took yeah. him to be angry in that scene regardless i don't know i mean just the fact that he literally just slices maul in half pretty ruthlessly yeah he, at the he, end. He, yeah yeah i always thought he was pissed i, don't, I didn't get that yeah he goes on comparing, like, the fight scenes in the original trilogy to the prequels, but it's, like, these selective moments where he's, like, it's always about moments like these that are after the fight, like the I am your father and, you know, the Emperor tempting Luke, which is a fair point that, like, yeah, maybe in The Phantom Menace that it, we don't care as much about the characters as we do for Luke and such in the original trilogy, but he, he goes on where he's, like, you people are wrong for saying that A New Hope was the worst fight because it had bad fight choreography. Well, it's like, yeah, that's not the... People aren't talking about the undercurrents of things. Just the fight scene in A New Hope is, like, the weakest one, just from a choreography yeah, he, standpoint. Like, it's fine to just admit that. Yeah, yeah. Like, he doesn't seem to be able to think on multiple levels in that way. He can't think about the physical movements and the significance of them at the same time. You know, he, he can't seem to divorce those two things, which is why I think he gets really mixed up on all this stuff. 
Well, he says, like, the fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith goes on for, like, 45 minutes, which is obviously, like, him being hyperbolic. But he says, like, the fight in A New Hope is way- between those two characters is way more interesting than what's going on in Revenge of the Sith. I'm like, not really. I, I mean, <laughs> in A New Hope, they're just these two, like, archetypal characters with a hinted past awkwardly swinging swords at each other. I guess it's, like, a powerful moment when Obi-Wan lets himself get killed, but, I mean... Revenge of the Sith, like that's the big build up. It's the big emotional yeah, payoff to that. Yeah, and I would even say the New Hope one is made more powerful by Revenge of the Sith. Like if you didn't know their shared history, like you said, it's just the wise old master and and the the evil villain, the evil faceless villain facing off and and daintily delicately weakly swinging their swords at each other. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I don't get what he means by that at all. I guess he talks about the ending multiplication effect, how, like, compared to, like, the earlier films, you know, there's a lot more stuff going on at the end of The Phantom Menace, you know, because you have the fight with Darth Maul, you have Anakin blowing up the Trade Federation ship, the Gungans and the droids, and then Padme trying to capture the Viceroy. But he acts as if, like, that in and of itself kills the finale. I I get there's some pacing and a little bit of tonal whiplash in those fights, but I don't think it, like, detracts from what any of the individual scenes are trying to get across. No, like, yeah, I think they're pretty compartmentalized. Again, I feel like it, this is just Mike's own history with film, but I think I feel like that a, a lot of like Western film fans who only watch Western films, not, not obviously not Western the genre like Western yeah. the West, <laughs> friends from the Western world have have a problem with movies with like different that move through different tones more rapidly than ours do when that's like that that's kind of a thing in a lot of film traditions like a lot of asian movies do that for example like uh you know they'll just have wildly different tones often scene to scene or within scenes and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that if if each piece works on its own and contributes to the larger whole which i think is is the case with phantom menace like i don't love any of those sequences particularly but i don't think they ruin each other or anything like that. This is where he uses that line where of Lucas saying, it's stylistically designed to be that way, and we can't undo that, but we can diminish the effects of it. Like, I know in context that line seems like, you know, like nonsensical, like he's trying to diminish what he was trying to do already, but I think it's clear that, like, when he saw the rough cut, he was just like, okay, maybe, like, this didn't, this went a little overboard with what I was trying to do and i could just tone it down in editing like that's all he was saying but he acts like he's saying this like nonsensical uh bullshit justification which just isn't the case yeah again it it relies on this trick he tries to pull where he tries to frame it as if it's like anything close to the final cut of the phantom menace when they're talking about a rough cut like he relies on the viewer believing that it, it, it resembles the final product in any way sort of thing and then he goes on about how they agree to train anakin when he's when yoda agrees to let obi-wan do it but he complains about them letting to because he's like well they sense grave danger so why are they letting it but then he also says they care about prophecy and they all clearly believe anakin is part of it so it kind of makes sense they would let him but even then this is just planting the seeds of his bitching and his revenge of the sith review when he just endlessly talks about the jedi and like their flaw when the whole flawed system of the jedi is part of the is part of the point but we can talk about that even more when it gets to Uh, that yeah Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. But yeah, the Jedi being dominant again is kind of the whole point. But anyway, I guess he just concludes like I guess he makes fair points about the strengths of Lucas 
having like collaborators in the original trilogy like people like Lawrence Kasdan as the screenwriter and mm-hmm. such you know which is a fair point i mean even like other auteur filmmakers like you know Kubrick or Antonioni and such like they had like co-screenwriters and it didn't dilute their their overall visions for their work it just maybe helps like smooth some edges which maybe Lucas could benefit from and then he says that like new a new hope had production problems and was rushed which resulted in its greatness and compares that to just the ease of Lucas doing things with digital technology and animation which I don't follow the logic of that no. at all like he always in the later reviews he shows lucas like sitting down with coffee or whatever i guess to sort of frame him as lazy or like uninvolved but like it's just a different process like using digital has nothing to do with why or why not certain things worked in the prequel trilogy like he's it's just another stupid piece of this portrait he's trying to paint of george lucas that doesn't really seem to have to do with anything about the real person or his actual process even yeah, exactly. It's it's just stupid. Well, I even would say, like, you know, for as nauseating as some of the CG can get in the prequels, and that is a problem sometimes, I actually think especially by Revenge of the Sith, what saves it, like, kind of, like, as a redeeming quality is I think Lucas has owned, like, a very classical craftsmanship, especially by that point, that he's able to wield just some powerful moments just from a director's standpoint, but Mike just shits on that approach even there. Yeah, I think he he embraces the artificiality of it more. It's almost like he's using it like map paintings or whatever in an older movie. Like things like Mustafar, you know, feel obviously fake, but they're they're supposed to feel sort of theatrical. Yeah, like they don't have much clear physicality. Like there's a clear ant. Like he's kind of embracing the animation of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. It's definitely to to their benefit. They like sort of look better as they go on. I would even say with the prequels, like uh, they do sort of cast aside the more down-to-earth quality of the original trilogy in favor of something more epic, which I think is a totally fine idea, especially since the story is more sprawling and like tragic and such. So it may not always work, but at least like I can see the intent behind what he's doing, which Mike doesn't even bother to consider. Yeah, I guess we can understand Gen X deeply personal attachment to the original movies so so i don't quite get it i think that's it for the phantom menace review i guess we can move on to the attack of the clones one which i'll say because attack of the attack of the clones is a pretty is i think me and you would agree is probably the weakest of lucas stars a lot of what he has to say here isn't as grating though there still is some of that yeah i i think so too and definitely he he scales back the plot uh contrivance talk though there is some of that it's more about you know yeah different different things to do with plot and character and tone which i think are more valid yeah and neither of the two branching paths of this movie the the major arcs of anakin and obi-wan really do anything for me so i i don't mind that too much he makes a good point that like Anakin and Obi-Wan's friendship isn't like well fleshed out or developed in Attack of the Clones. Specifically how it's like they talk about things that made them friends versus we actually seeing them being friends. Yeah. I think that's a I think that's a fair point. Sure. Yeah, I definitely think so too. They 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 feel sort of very stilted anytime you see them on screen. I guess everybody sort of does in this movie in a way that's supposed to like some of our later reviews talk about uh referenced you know the 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 physicality of of silent films and things like that but it just feels incredibly awkward when paired with modern technology and modern filmmaking techniques 
Yeah, and I guess we can talk more about that when we talk about the apologist. But again, just because that was mm-hmm. maybe part of the intention, it doesn't make it make it good. Like I'm sorry, no, no. you can't you can't always appeal to intent to save something. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah, all one of those videos does. But we'll get we'll get to that. And I'll say, like, just in regards to the acting in Attack of the Clones, like, I mean, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman both do give stilted performances in the film, but again, it's not their fault. They have, like, kind of hard lines to make sound natural, and, like, Lucas, again, just not being a great director of actors doesn't help, but I think Hayden Christensen actually handles the more dark, angsty stuff decently well, especially by Revenge of the Sith, but he really bombs like the actual like love stuff here but so does natalie portman and again it's not totally on their shoulders either yeah i always thought he was fine uh, at least i would say as a kid like it, it always really hit or resonated with me the parts you know where he murders the sand people and and uh talks to uh, natalie portman like like confides with her about that i, I always thought you know, it really conveys the, the the starkness of realizing someone you love is kind of a bit of a monster, and is in struggling to process that. Like I think he he conveys that anger well, and she conveys that sort of bewilderment and in compassion well. I think all that stuff works fine. I've I've never really had a problem with that stuff, uh, but you're right. The the love scenes are a little a uh, little little awkward. Uh, just a, just a bit, yeah. Just, uh, just just a little bit. Yeah, which is also a good point. Like I think that that stuff is handled pretty well in Attack of the Clones. The stuff with Anakin and his mother, like dramatically, mm-hmm. I think it hits. But at the same time, I think the love stuff kind of does distance you from the characters in a way because of how kind of cliche and stilted it is. So even when something that on its own is fine, it doesn't. It kind of mutes it. A little bit but that's just me i feel no i agree yeah it's it's hard to see them as as real it, it's hard to see them as any more than props in a scene at the end of the day oh yeah he complains about how like the jedi code like doesn't allow people to love and he just says why aren't we told why we're not told why when it's like very clear that the jedi are like these stoic monks who think that strong emotions can lead to temptation by darkness like it's not yeah hard to grasp like it's like monks in real life yeah. don't take partners right yeah <laughs> does he just not know any religions like they, they there's some pretty close analogs yeah to, to buddhism or, or christian monks in the middle ages things like that you know uh, uh re- rejecting attachments because because anger leads to the dark side like it's a pretty easy thing to follow like the, these things are even elaborated on in the original trilogy like it's nothing new like that push and pull between anger and and uh, you know stoicism is is in there with with luke so i don't get why he's so confused like i think like obi-wan even says like you know you have like your feelings do you well but they can also be used by the dark side for their own purposes like he explicitly says that to luke like the jedi always have to embrace their themselves while battle it like that's kind of the whole point of the jedi as well as just a lot of religion in general in real life exactly and i think it's pretty clear subtextually or textually like, that the jedi of this era have like sort of gone too far in in become too paranoid about feeling any sort of emotions and that that's what sort of you know leaves anakin a little unmoored because he's suffering from these uh, these issues of loss and grief and an attachment and he has nobody really to confide in like the, I, I think mike just can't accept that the jedi are flawed which is the obvious you know 
it, it's a, it's an pretty obvious conceit of this entire trilogy. I, I just don't think he understands that because they're not portrayed that way in the original trilogy. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, it's also, I think, like, when you said how the rigid ways, like, are part of what drives Anakin to the dark side. Like, I think that's decently set up uh, by these yeah. movies, you know? He just has to, he doesn't realize that originals, like, are meant to take place after the prequels. So, like, it kind of makes yeah. sense that fucking Obi-Wan and Yoda may have changed their viewpoints after their failures, you know? Yeah, he, he, he seems to think Yoda should be wise forever, but there's a pretty explicit scene where Anakin's like, ah, uh, he's talking with Yoda, and he's talking about being tormented, and Yoda's just like, ah, meditate, bro, or whatever. You know, obviously he doesn't exactly say that, but, you know, he just tells him to let it go, and it doesn't work for him. Like, those conflicts are spelled out on screen, but you have to you have to take the movie by its word and, and leave your preconceived notions at the door. He gets into the romance stuff later, but like first he the Clone Wars plots like that actually starts in this film. He claims again that it's confusing, but again, like I think like if you're paying attention, you can follow that Palpatine is like playing both sides. He's got the clones that are gonna serve the Republic, and he's manipulating these separatists like who are disillusioned by the Republic to break off with their droid army and recruit other systems and like it's all just a means of using war to gain further political power like it's just which has happened in real life it's not it's not terribly difficult like not every little detail needs to be said like the broad strokes of it are pretty easy to grasp yeah he hates he, he hates tell don't show but he he wants everything to be told like i i understood this shit as a child and i wasn't i wasn't a particularly smart child i'll tell you that much i was pretty fucking stupid but he, even so this stuff made perfect sense to me so i think he's just being willfully ignorant i know there are people online who will say well the plinket reviews are meant as satire but it's like even when he's not in the Plinket character, Mike makes complaints like this. Even when he just offhandedly yeah. references the prequels and other videos they make. Yeah, he does this shit all the time. I remember in their last Jedi review, them talking about, like, oh, why would they be bombs in space or whatever? Why would bombs work in space? Blah, blah, blah. He, yeah, he's exactly like this. He, he uses the character as a shield. You know, so he can say it's satire, perhaps, but he means what he says. I didn't watch the Obi-Wan show. Like you said, I just don't really care about these new Star Wars products. But I think even, like, Jay, when, like, I just saw a little bit of, like, the videos where the three of them were talking about it. And then Jay's like, well, what the prequels unintentionally showed is that the Jedi kind of suck. It's like, dude, like, it's, like, been years, years since these reviews, and you still haven't realized that that was intentional. <laughs> Yeah, and even, like, Last Jedi straight up says that for all the people who, who, who were too dense to get that the first time around. Like, he said that, the like, like Luke in that movie says that the Jedi fucked up, and they these kinds of people still don't seem to understand that. It's really baffling. Well, even, like, in the Force Awakens review, like, he, I guess, like, this jumps ahead in his review of Attack of the Clones, or even where he complains about how the Jedi take children from their families and kind of raise them in this environment and says, like, that's an idiotic idea on George Lucas's part. Which, again, like, the point is that it's, like, an unhealthy thing that, like, indoctrinates these kids into dogma, even if the Jedi are, like, you know, kind of well-meaning. Like, the point is that it's a flawed system, like, right 
to its core. Yeah, yeah, you have like these uns this unstable warrior caste serving this kind of corrupt republic that that doesn't give a shit about what happens to the planets that are not immediately under its purview. Like it's it seems pretty dysfunctional. It's kind of hard to deny. It's it's right in front of their faces, so I, I don't understand it. I guess then he goes into more just annoying nitpicks about the scene when the assassin tries to kill Padme. Like, a lot of this is just, like, why are they using bugs at the window, and why did Anakin, how did he know that he landed on the right speeder when he was uh, going after him? And it's just all this annoying, annoying shit. There's one kind of valid point he makes. Again, it's a minor thing, like, when Obi-Wan jumps out of the, the window to grab the probe. Like, I get, I get that is probably more of an Anakin, like, impulsive kind of thing, but, like, again overall scale of the sequence i don't think anything is terribly like mutilated in terms of characterization or things like that no and i think obi-wan sort of becomes more impulsive as the movies go on you know obviously by the end another thing he complains about in the the sith review we'll get to is him confronting grievous so dangerously in the sort of a uh, you know good bad and the ugly kind of way staring him down but, but but i think that's just part of like you know i think their personalities feed off each other after a while and i think he becomes unintentionally more impulsive due to anakin's influence so, yeah, that, that's how i'd explain it anyway i think it's a, just as valid as nitpicking about it again like from his perspective i can see like i said with like some of like the whole queen cleaning the droid stuff but again like even if it's on the level of nitpicky it's just like so inconsequential to the overall design that why even bother making it a problem even in that revenge of the sith scene like i just see it as like a jedi thing to just like honorably confront somebody like they're not just gonna swoop in and cut someone's head off and run away like that doesn't seem like yeah, what the I, jedi do you know yeah and that also wouldn't be badass it's a fucking awesome scene it yeah. goes pretty hard honestly i kind of like it yeah it's you know it's just a kind of a wickedly awesome action scene for what we see of it but anyway that's revenge of the sith but yeah he he a lot of this review is him like saying like when like like obi-wan tells like anakin like this weapon is your life versus when like yoda's lessons in empire you know he's he complains about how this yoda is like fighting with a lightsaber vis-a-vis -vis the older yoda but again it's like i said he doesn't seem to realize that these people's attitudes may have changed in the over 20 years since this trilogy happened yeah yeah he he, he doesn't seem to understand that that people can can be malleable over time <laughs> that characters you know can, can change over time that that's the thing i've noticed a bit with him too in his subsequent star wars reviews and all that like he he holds things to weird standards he compares things in bizarre ways he gets to when he talks more about the specific romance like again there's some good points he makes like yeah sending anakin off with padme of all people is like a contrived thing you know they try to say that palpatine influenced it but again like the shroud of the dark side that is kind of a it's like the phantom menace it is sort of a lame excuse to just move these puzzle pieces together to get the desired uh, effect right that lucas was just aiming for and also that, like, dialogue between... He compares the dialogue to Shakespeare, which even the people who positively praise this film compare it to Shakespeare. My problem is, is that, like, Shakespeare's dialogue is full of, like, wit and turns of phrase and poesy. Like, that's why it's celebrated. There's none of that in Attack of the Clones. <laughs> like, it's all pretty banal, yeah. cliche, like, Harlequin romance stuff. 
Yeah, he, Shakespeare has a lot of like building and complicating of metaphor and you, you know clever use of symbolism and all that. And yeah, it's it's just it's more like there's a Shakespearean affectation, like there's a surface level stylistic adoption of that sort of dialogue, but it it has none of the depth of Shakespeare. Exactly, and I think it's it's just Lucas's limits as like a screenwriter. Like, and that's just I'm not like doing a character assassination of Lucas. Like, I mean, it's just honestly like, he has his limits as a writer, and so obviously yeah. he would look to something kind of obvious like that when I don't think he was really up to the challenge of writing a romance like this on his own. No, I think yeah, I think he's he he's just a big picture guy too. He's looking at overall theme. He's looking at overall metaphor he's looking at overall structure like i guess we should remember too his early films were experimental and presumably lacking any sort of dialogue any sort of legible plot it's just not his wheelhouse and i i kind of wish that like if that's his strength i kind of wish with like attack of the clones he could write a story that he could tell more visually but he didn't like he has to rely on this really bad dialogue that that he writes when he knows he's not that good at it like at least he has awareness but at the same time it's like if you not have that maybe hire somebody to help smooth those edges man yeah just like dictate your story to Lawrence Kasdan or something and get him to write it you know like he could just be he could create the story he could have he could have direct say in the overall plot but he doesn't have to write the moment to moment dialogue there are some also maybe not the two videos we'll talk about that tried to defend uh, some of this dialogue, they'll, they'll go back and forth and saying like, well, it's just a stylistic thing, the Shakespeare thing. But when if you can point out like that, it just doesn't have the depth of Shakespeare to warrant that comparison. Uh, they'll say, well, Anakin is an awkward uh, person. Like, you know, he's just badly trying to flirt and, and stuff like that. But didn't you just say before that it was a stylistic choice that's meant to be played straight? And but it's like they so they like contradict their own defenses when it comes a point when it's like maybe just admit defeat that this is just a weak part of the movie guys like it's fine yeah yeah you you don't have to defend every part of the movie exactly yeah i i, I don't think he's anakin is supposed to be awkward or creepy or anything i think he just comes across that way accidentally i guess it's funny too that like when he plinker or mike you know he goes through the all the the point by point thing of all of Anakin's fuck ups, bad interrupting his inappropriate comments, and like murdering the Sa the Tuscan Raiders, like all that's kind of funny and like valid. Like yeah. I never really that's big part of the problem is that like I don't really buy there to be a reason Padme falls in love with Anakin. Like he's a clearly unstable, borderline sociopath and like murderer who also supports like. A potential dictatorship which he's clearly yeah. against and yeah. some people try to say well it's uh she's attracted to him because there's that forbidden quality to it but it's like it feels kind of shallow to build this sprawling romance story across especially yeah cons he especially considering it dooms the galaxy right yeah exactly it's, it's very very tenuous like i said i like some of those moments with the darker moments but i don't think they scan as like legible character decisions you know legible character acts it's it's very bizarre and, and, and yeah i would also agree that's kind of a funny sequence one of the only sequences i found legitimately funny out of out of all the plinket reviews this time around i must say i guess after he goes has a long spiel about how samuel l jackson was miscast as mace windu which i I mean, I kind of agree. Like, I think Sam Jack, he does make a good point that Sam Jackson's strengths as an actor come from him 
being this like naturally kind of energetic uh, performer, like with a lot of charisma and like a sort of this kinetic kind of quality to him as an actor. And I agree that like for I could see like Forrest Whitaker could have done like a better job like playing this, especially considering like maybe play Mace Windu kind of like ghost dog almost in that right. vein. I could see, but again, it's not like yeah. something that's worth like pointing out the whole sequence for which he he does here. Yeah, it's it's such a my like he's kind of a bit part. It's it's weird. I, I don't understand. You know why it, why it would matter at all. I, I actually think Sam Jackson could have played like Django Fett. To be honest, like he could have yeah. handled like a rough bounty hunter like that. I think Sam Jackson could have played that part well. I guess he just bitches endlessly about the lightsaber fights here, but we've already covered that. That it's just weird that he complains about spectacle, like upping the spectacle. Like it's it's fucking fine, man. It's Star Wars. And that's yeah, spectacle's fine. And some of this is just like headcanon crap that he says. Like each Jedi should have their own weapon designed uniquely for them. It's like where did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, maybe religious orders have strict rules sometimes that are often arbitrary in hindsight. You know, after being encoded for generations, you know, it could just be a custom. Human customs are are weird, like they're not logical all the time. It doesn't make sense. And then he mostly bitches about the CG Yoda fighting. He's like, he has his physical limit. He has a uh, limitations because of his size. When really he should be above that, even though. It shows Yoda kicking ass despite his size, so it kind of undermines the point he's making. And then there's just this one scene where he part where he complains about the part when Yoda is uh, Obi Wan comes to talk to Yoda when Yoda's training all the younglings. Like this entire section, he bitches about for like five minutes, and it's literally like the a plot exposition scene. Like, I, I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, that, that that was bizarre. He says it like devalues lightsabers or something, or like. It's it's all this bullshit that's just totally arbitrary, you know. Video essay, you know, I create these conditions for what 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 is a good thing, totally arbitrarily, and then since this thing doesn't do those things, it's automatically bad. It's it's just it's it, it's the thing I hate about a lot of video essays, and it, I just found it annoying and tedious. He also says like it ruins the uniqueness of being trained by Yoda when I think the idea is that Yoda kind of trains everybody. That's always been the idea anyway. Like, I don't, whatever, man. Yeah, how is it not? Yeah, and again, he has no, like you said, he has no notion of time. It's still unique that Luke gets trained by Yoda because he's, He's like the only fucking Jedi who's gotten trained by Yoda in 20 (laughs) years or whatever. He's like the last one. How is that not unique? It doesn't make sense. Uh, And then, I mean, they already set out that Yoda was partially a master to Obi-Wan, too, in the original trilogy. But anyway, whatever. Uh, He makes this point. He's like, I hate when people say these movies are made for children. And he points out that they have violent scenes and some like political themes and stuff like that which uh, but here's the thing like children can take more than you give them credit and even like children's books like you look at like children's literature like pinocchio or um, animal farm or something like that like they hold like complex themes about politics and like the human condition and stuff but they're presented in a way that would enrich a kid's mind like that 
that can still talk to and kids intelligently. I think the prequels, like, I don't think, like, they're that obscure for kids to follow, like, at all. No, I, I honestly kind of sought out stuff like that as a kid that was sort of darker or, m- or more challenging thematically. Like, still kids' media, but, like, I would gravitate to stuff like that, I guess, that would deal with heavier things, might be a little violent for my age or, or, or whatever. And, and, yeah, like I said, I liked the prequels as a kid. I had no problem with the politics scenes or, or the violent scenes. I was actually, I will say, I was frightened when I heard... Revenge of the Sith came out and there was a scene where Anakin got burnt and my cousin talked about it and I was terrified of it. I think I watched it with him at home for the first time and like covered my eyes when when he was getting burned because I heard it was terrifying or whatever. So I didn't see that for the first couple of times I watched the movie. But beyond that, you know, I, I was OK with everything prequels, you know, I, I, I digested and, and enjoyed it all. I don't even think they're specifically, like, made for children. They're just, like, all-ages films. Like, there's just a universality that Lucas wants with these movies to communicate, right? Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. They, they're they trying to target different audiences. And I, th- I, I think he's successful a lot of the time when it comes to that. He uh, does appeal to a lot of different demographics. Just not, you know, angry 30-something guys, which is fair. You know, can't please everybody. I mean, who would want to appeal? Like, what would appeal to that demographic anyway? Like, I don't know. Bo- nothing seems boring. Shit would probably appeal to those. Jurassic people. World, I guess. Like, yeah. If Mike's any indication. Ghostbusters, I guess. Wait, you know? <sighs> we, we should talk about Ghostbusters sometime. I really think that movie's mediocre as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a uh, coming soon to the. So for this audience's enjoyment, uh, us, uh, us, us doing a Red Letter Media-style takedown of Ghostbusters. Yeah, we'll do an epic Ghostbusters Exposed video, seven hours. Yeah, I don't think there's anything really left to talk about with his Attack of the Clones video. Because then he's just like, I don't even know what happens at the end. And that's kind of it. Yeah, it's just, it's just like it, it doesn't say, end the same as Empire, therefore bad. Is basically his argument. It's oh yeah, kind of worthless that he's trying to make these poetic callbacks to Empire. Like, but he doesn't even explain why why it's bad. Like, you can say like it doesn't do the stuff as well as Empire, which I would agree with. But the fact that it exists is not in and of itself a problem or a lack of imagination. No, yeah, it's just doing a different thing. It, that's he just has a problem with change. The poor guy. <laughs> We are on to his Revenge of the Sith review, and I, I have to say, for as much as we've complained about the past two reviews, I think this is, like, the crowning achievement of just all the shittiest qualities of these these videos. This one right here, guys. Yeah, it's a, t- a total orgy of, of complaints about, you know, plot contrivances and logic and misunderstanding the basic things that the movie is trying to communicate, not liking things because they're different from other things. Yeah, you're right. It's like a, it's essentially a blanket greatest hits in, in the worst sort of way. One of the weird things he talks about is that, like, he mentions how dark Revenge of the Sith gets, which it is the darkest of all the Lucas Star Wars films, almost just by its nature of the story it's telling, which is like is fine. Like, but he acts like, why does it have to be so dark? Do we need that stuff in a Star Wars film? And then he'll, like, in that that review where he's talking, him and Jay talk to the guy who did The People vs. George Lucas, he's like, the original Star Wars was a gritty film. Like, they blew up a, they blow up a planet in it. Everything else after is, like, cartoony shit. And then he complains that it gets really dark. Like, it doesn't even make sense. It's- no, yeah. It, 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 even so, why would that be a complaint? 
Like, why does that make the movie bad? Like, he, he really has, like, a, a Hollywood producer's mind. Like, it, it's a bad thing that it doesn't hit all the quadrants and appeal to as many kids and adults as possible. Like, but he's he's not thinking like a an artist should think. You know, a critic should try and engage with an artist in their art, you know, in its own terms. But he thinks like a producer. He's It's like he's giving him producing notes or something like that. Yeah, and then he just goes on about how, like, the best things about the movie are the things that are not in the film. Like, how Han Solo didn't have a cameo, the Millennium Falcon, wasn't it? Like, this is just so petty, like, him saying yeah, this like, stuff. Yeah, like, it's almost like he's trying to diss George Lucas by association. He's like, oh, because he could have put these things in. That means George Lucas is a dumbass. It's, it seems so desperate. Like, why even bring that up? It's stupid. At least he agrees that the Emperor is just a fun villain. Like, you know, yeah, and it, like he is. It. I think, honestly, like, the that's an improvement from the originals. Like, the Emperor in Return of the Jedi, when you have to compare it to how he is in Revenge of the Sith, I think he looks pretty weak in Return of the Jedi as a villain. In Revenge of the Sith, honestly, like, he's kind of every way you want an enjoyable villain to be portrayed. Like, yeah. he's, just a, he's just a ton of fun to watch. Yeah, it's just an asshole like taking advantage of a of a broken system, and it's fun to see him sort of tear through everything. Good God, the the fucking nitpicks he goes through in this opening sequence <laughs> are just so numerous. Like when he's like, "I don't know who General Grievance is because no one told me yet." And it's like, well, you're gonna see him, and they're gonna fucking <laughs> tell you who he is, and they do. Okay, like. Uh, <laughs> Yo, what are you, a Wikipedia editor? You need to know his entire 50-year backstory? He's a general. His name is General Grievous. He has a ship. He's with the Trade Federation. Like, what more do you need to know? He's killed Jedi? You can see that by the lightsabers, his collection. Yeah, he's kind of a badass general who's also kind of like a sniveling coward at the same time. Yeah, exactly. He's like, why does he walk over there? Because he's kind of a pussy. Like, he tries to run away both times he's confronted, even though he murders Jedi. It's just a funny little contradiction. It doesn't have to be super complex. He's just a goofy little... He's a heavy, basically, you know? He's yeah, he's, he's just like, a goofy heavy. He's a mustache kind of twirling bad guy, in a way. But that's kind of the point. Like, he's just... He's there to distract the people from the real the real villain that's behind it all. And that's his that's his Yeah, purpose. exactly. Yeah, it's like a James Bond villain or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and he's fun for the little bits you see of him. Uh, you know, he's kind of got a cool mm-hmm. design. Yeah, uh, I, I like the forearm gimmick with the four lightsabers. That's kind of cool, you know. He's got a bit of like a, you know, a parallel to Anakin and Darth Vader because he's like a machine that kills Jedis, which, you know, Anakin obviously becomes. I'm not saying that's like super fleshed out, but like, you know, the parallel's there at least. Yeah, 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 I, I think so. Bitches about how like Anakin like goes to help out one of the clones and claims that like Lucas is backtracking from like Anakin's darkness and attack of the clones when it's like it's just fair to say that like these guys have been fighting with these people for a long time so it kind of makes sense you to at least grow some attachments to the people you're fighting alongside <laughs> even if they're clones like <laughs> yeah but it, it's it's not explicitly stated so mike can't understand it yeah it ain't exactly like wait what are, what do those two things have to do with each other because he killed people he, who who assaulted and murdered his mother that means he wouldn't help a, a clone who he's fought beside but how does that make sense those are two different 
people. There's two different types of people. It doesn't make any sense. He he goes on about like he's like I thought Anakin was a noble Jedi Knight who became a Darth Vader, but for some reason he's written as a bad apple from the start. Well, it's like the point is like for him to believably become Darth Vader, we have to see that he's capable of some darkness, but he's also like got some heroism in him too which this opening does show yeah the point is that he's let down sort of by the institutions kind of thing like he had potential but he sort of screwed over by by not receiving sort of respond to his needs like his loss of of people around him and stuff and his you know his overall emotional needs and stuff but yeah he's not not some sort of like born sociopath like he seems to like mike seems to be implying he complains about the opening being like it having a tone problem but again it's like you said like he's thinking like this producer uh, like you know he's, he doesn't understand that like movies can just swerve into different tones and it can be fine which i think the opening of Revenge of the Sith does well. Like, you know, you you know, you get the fun swashbuckling adventure stuff, which, you know, you'd expect from Star Wars. You get a lightsaber duel. You get some of the comedy with R2, and then you get the yeah. hints of some of the, the darker stuff to come when he kills off Count Dooku. Like, it's just a decent, it's a fun, big set piece to open with, and it just sets things up for how things are going to go. He just endlessly complains about, why can't it be one or the other? Is yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like why can't it not be one or the other? You know. Yeah, I think it's a you know it almost rivals the the Return of the Jedi set piece. I guess that they're sort of they sort of rhyme in that they're sort of set pieces disconnected from the rest of the action of those respective films. You know, I think they both they're both similarly entertaining to me. I, I I'm not huge on Return of the Jedi, but I may be softer on it than other people. So, so yeah, you know, I'd say both of those openings work for me decently well. Yeah, sure, and I actually probably prefer. Uh, the Revenge of the Sith opening, probably because I, I actually might have the opinion that Revenge of the Sith uh, probably is an overall stronger work than Return of the Jedi, just as a standalone. I would agree. One of the things, like, when Mike talks about the, well, you know, of course, he just continues to make fun of, like, Lucas's own, like, oh, it's poetry, it rhymes without, just because he thinks that's stupid for some reason, and like he says how when they find the captured Palpatine, it's very much staged, kind of like the confrontation in uh, in Return of the Jedi. And he's like, you can't use that imagery here at the beginning. It's confusing. And the point is that it's kind of the same setup, is that like Anakin, Palpatine is testing Anakin to see if he's good to be his new apprentice against his current one, just like he's trying to just like he later tries to do with luke against vader the difference is is that anakin proves that he can be manipulated into becoming the sith and luke uh, has the will to resist yeah and like no matter which order you watch the the series in like it forms an interesting counterpoint no matter if you see the luke one first or the anakin one first you know it's, it shows both sides of that that dilemma in an interesting yeah. way I, I don't see how that's confusing at all yeah it's just part of the whole the overall structure of Lucas's saga, which is you know, totally fine, which Mike seems to like be able to at least acknowledge that he has this, but he doesn't like give any good reasons as to why he doesn't like it. It's just sort of a fiat that he says it's bad. Yeah. Yeah, he just has these weird prejudices. I don't know. He he doesn't seem to have grown as a film fan much since he was, you know, maybe a kid or a teenager. No offense to him. <laughs> yeah no it's, it's that's pretty accurate uh but some of the other just nitpicky stuff is like when palpatine says to you, know, you can't get help from someone it's uh you know he's the sith lord and then he's like why doesn't obi-wan say 
where? Where do we get help from? Or how do you know what a Sith Lord is, Chancellor? It's like, well, the fucking Chancellor works pretty close with the Jedi, and I think it's safe to say they told him that, hey, Count Dooku is a Sith is Lord. It? Yeah, like, how would he not know? Like, are they a secret? Why would Sith be a secret? Like, people know history. Like, they used to fight the Sith. Why would that, why would that, why are Sith, like, like the Illuminati or something? Like, nobody <laughs> knows about them? I don't think so. Like, that's stupid. Oh, and the Sith are, and they're part of the fucking conflict they're fighting in right now. Like, they know Count Dooku is a Sith. Yeah, there was, like, a Sith on, on... Palpatine's home planet. There's Darth Maul. They're, yeah. they're pretty. They're a known quantity. It, it doesn't really. I don't get where he's coming from. He he talks about how like like how the Clone Wars are not felt on Coruscant, and that's a bad thing. Well, it's like, well, you know, World War Two, Mike. It wasn't totally felt in America. You know, you didn't see starvations in these other countries that weren't being invaded. <laughs> yeah, and and also, you know, the conflict that this is. Uh, prophetically you know rhyming with you know stuff like the iraq war you know obviously you know when americans were told they were liberating those countries they didn't feel the the immediate effects at home so it's yeah it, this is a thing that always happens throughout history like that's almost the norm for conflicts you know throughout history it, it's very strange yeah, and he's like, if you were an average joe the effects of the empire might not have been felt on you well it's like well yeah i mean that's kind of the case for a lot of things. There are people who are always going to be better off than others when bad shit is happening. Like, even just normal people aren't going to be targeted in the same way. Yeah, like, lots of people in Russia are nostalgic for the Soviet Union and all, all sorts of things, you know? Pe pe people's lives under different regimes don't necessarily reflect the entire historical picture kind of thing. I guess, Mike, as he said in his Phantom Menace review, uh, we once set up blockades around Cuba to prevent the missiles uh, from being launched. It was a little event. It was called World War One. when, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a little gag. I know that was meant as a gag, but I might be convinced Mike genuinely confuses those two. Uh, okay, that, that, that's kind of petty of me. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Like, he doesn't seem to... Like, he, he says this stuff doesn't reflect reality, but he doesn't seem to... I, I feel like George Lucas probably knows more about military history than Mike Stolglasa does. Yeah. <laughs> what else you can say about George Lucas? I mean, the guy's not an ignoramus when it comes to a lot of things that he is talking about in his films. Yeah, exactly. He's just has trouble with the human element sometimes, the personal element. Which is not even, like, unique to him. That's, like, a lot of kind of these very genre, like, sci-fi fantasy types, like, struggle with that generally. Yeah, absolutely. I think it comes to the worst part of this video where he says, is everyone blind and stupid? And he goes through just nitpicking every last uh, detail of these characters and claiming how they're idiots when part of the point is that they're supposed to fuck up and fail. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, newsflash... The Jedi are stupid and, and ignorant and prideful, and that, that sort of brings about the downfall. It doesn't matter. Maybe it's a little cartoonish, but that, that's okay. It's an operatic story. This is like the most operatic Star Wars movie there is. You know, it's supposed to be told in broad strokes. Like, the, the, they're grand fools. They're tragic fools sort of, sort of thing. You know, it's supposed to be told with these big gestures of blindness and stupidity, and I think that's fine. It You know, it's like a Greek tragedy or something. Yeah, it's a great tragedy crossed with modern serials or cartoons and comic books. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, 
he talks about like Yoda can't sense there's uh, something wrong with Anakin. It's like no, he clearly knows. He just gives him bad advice. Bad advice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was saying that. Like I was saying, I think last, last for last trivia, there's literally a scene where he says, you know, he just got to chill out, basically. And and you can see on Anakin's face how ineffective, you know, how inadequate Yoda's advice is to him at that point. Or he's like, why is uh, the Senate just going along with Palpatine's story? It's like, well, that's just how it happens with things. Politicians spin these narratives in their favor, and they get people on their side. I mean, that's that's what Hitler did. I mean, that's what even like lesser like types like Bush and stuff were doing around this time. And he's just like, oh, why are they idiots? It's like the point is that they're being fucking blinded. Like he's warped all these people and onto his side. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't seem to understand the hysteria of, like, you know, the hysteria of patriotism and wanting to be in the in-group of the patriots and wanting to exclude people. Like, people who were, didn't want Bush to invade Iraq, who, you know, doubted the validity of the, the WMDs, you know, were, were, were called traitors or whatever, unpatriotic back then. You know, even among more, like, liberal types or people who would call themselves liber liberals today, you know. There's just a mass hysteria that comes into play when you want to be seen as the good and the righteous kind of thing. I mean, there was a whole thing like when the people would speak out against the Iraq war during then, they would be like, how dare you criticize our presidents during wartime and things like that. Like that was yeah. a huge attitude people had and it was just. So mm -hmm. bullshit, uh, just moral yeah. maturity crap. And it doesn't matter if he looks obviously evil. Like I, I think it still works on like a symbolic or a, a thematic level. You know, it's again, it's theatrical. You, you know, we can see he looks obviously evil. It's like he's we wearing a theater costume for our benefit. You know, we can see as audience members that he looks obviously evil, and I think that's okay. It doesn't matter rationally within you know the confines of the physical world of the of the film that it it doesn't seem like it makes sense. It seems slightly illogical. Like I think it works thematically, so I think it's valid. Well, it's actually you don't even need to go that far with it because I think he actually says like the attempt on my life has left me scarred and deformed. That's and true. Like he literally says like that's why he kind of looks way the way he does. And like I mean, it's just hard not to. How do you not draw a comparison to him saying like yeah, the, this attack on my life and like those responsible will be hunted down and eliminated. It's like, how do yeah. you not draw a comparison to what was going on in the U.S. government at the time? But Yeah, I think, like, Bush said they were going to, like, start a holy war or something right after 9-11. Like, it's basically just that, you know, it's a pr pretty explicit parallel. Yeah, and even, like, the whole Padme saying, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Like, the point is that they've all, like you said, they bought into this hysteria and his narrative spinning and you know just like normal people did for like real life dictators they went along with these kind of dangerous ideologies which again like but he seems to think for some reason that just normal people don't do that when history easily <laughs> proves him wrong <laughs> yeah he seems to have a too too optimistic a picture of people during those circumstances you know which maybe is a good thing to be an optimist but not everybody's logical all the time yeah, and then I guess we don't even need to go into all the stuff about the Jedi Council that he nitpicks, just because we pointed out that all of it is wrong, and he doesn't really get that that's the point that they fuck up. But then he talks about it, he's like, Anakin is the dumbest character in the whole thing. It's like, but I, I would say like it kind of subverts like what you know from the original trilogy because. 
it makes it seem like in the original trilogy that he was just like seduced and became evil but here he his mind was clearly like twisted into thinking that he was like doing something good but even as he was conflicted like i agree some of it like can be a little forced and stilted especially towards like the end when all of a sudden he's like kind of going on these megalomaniacal rants after shedding a tear for what he's done but i think like the setup like and especially like in the start of revenge of the sith like the interior transition to him turning to evil i think is pretty well done in the style that lucas is doing yeah i don't think he gets that anakin's like mad with desperation to say like padme was one of the first people he ever saw from the outside world that wasn't part of this sort of hell of 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 the slave trade that he grew up in kind of thing and and, you know he's sort of gone insane with the desire to preserve her life even if it it makes absolutely no sense like he seems to complain about the the fact that he abandons the jedi so easily but we've seen over the course of the film that they're totally useless to him at this point like that they they don't really offer him any real support or help, is and he's so desperate to say this this first person that he ever felt a genuine bond with that that he's willing to jump ship because you know, the alternative is siding with an organization that has done him no benefit. Yeah, and he's also it's been set up by Attack of the Clones that like when it's somebody he cares about that he thinks is in danger or has been done bad things to like he's capable of doing some pretty horrifying stuff including murdering children like i'm not saying again i'm not going to say like everything about the turn works especially towards towards the end because i feel like at first it does seem like he's like wants to say padme but then it kind of becomes this power hungry thing towards the end in a way that doesn't feel entirely like it's meshed super well i guess you can make the case that it's like passion is more like the tragic flaw in general but there's something awkward about the way it kind of transitions between those two sides of it yeah the, 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 i think he's sort of trying to paint him as possessive like he's sort of trying to paint a picture of him as a sort of possessive abuser with the way he chokes her and stuff but you're right it it's never totally scanned with me i'd be interested in a more cogent defense of that part than, than the two apologetics videos we watched gave. I don't think they ever really gave a satisfactory accounting of uh, of that part of the turn. Yeah, it's it's never totally worked for me either. And then he moves on to talking about the CG. I guess like he talks about like how which is weird because he complains here that like the extravagance of like the fight between Obi Wan and Anakin, which. But like you said, like this film is very much operatic. Like it's such a grand spectacle that it's going for. Like we're literally in a sphere of hell as they're like fighting each other on lava. Like it's on the nose, but like I mean, it's clearly going for that very just emotional operatic tone. Yeah, and I I always thought it was an it had enough to maintain visual interest too. Like the swings of the lightsabers get kind of monotonous, but the way they sort of transition from the interior of the the station as it crumbles away to the outside, like all the all the protection is sort of stripped bare and they end up right on the lava, transitioning from you know vertically and horizontally to the bottom of the of the river. You know, I, I always thought it was interesting enough to sustain interest for that long. Like it's not my favorite fight in the series by any means but i've never considered it like a bad uh, sequence yeah and i think williams music definitely helps sell the 
the sort of epicness of it. And I think that mm-hmm. definitely carries it, even say some of those visuals may falter. But he has this whole thing where he's like, the point is that Anakin loses. Uh, stretching it out so long is dumb. And it's like, well, what, do you want the fight to just be like them in A New Hope? <laughs> like, Yeah, really? yeah, like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and also it's supposed to function as a, a you know, as a prequel. It's supposed to a- adequately sell this beat. Just because we know as viewers that that's what happens eventually doesn't mean it sh- shouldn't revel in this and you know take its time with this plot beat. I, I don't quite get that either. Well, what's odd especially is how he later complains about how the dialogue scenes are all like just sort of shot in this normal kind of classic style. And yet he complains simultaneously about this extravagance. Like, what bothers you so much? Is like every little thing about Lucas's decisions bother you in these movies? Because that's just what it seems like. Yeah, I guess he just wants the specific style of of the original trilogy. Uh, and anything, yeah, anything that deviates from that is bad. He just complains about everything. He's never happy. What do you expect? I guess he's a well Gen Xer who grew up. Uh, with a shrine to Ghostbusters, I mean, you know, like we're getting like really personal and roasting this guy, but I mean, he'll, he'll never hear us. He kind of invites it. Well, actually, that's a good point. I think that crew, that whole Red Letter Media crew, has a has this kind of like concealed quality to themselves. Like they don't let in outsiders who will actually challenge them on things. That's true. Yeah, they're very isolationist, which I guess in some sense is admirable because, like, it's more healthy, I guess, if you're a big internet person to not constantly be engaging on social media and stuff. Like, they're probably more stable people than a lot of those people. But again, yeah, you're right. They they never really seem to engage with any real criticisms. I mean, they'll take like cheap shots at like obvious targets, like nerd YouTube channels or whatever. But like, that's obvious shit. Like that, it's. It doesn't take bravery or intelligence to, to dunk on fucking, you know, Star Wars nerd channels, right? It's it's easy. It's low-hanging fruit. They never actually engage with tough arguments. There was a guy, I don't know if you've ever read it, there was somebody who actually wrote a really long response to his Phantom Menace review. Uh, uh-huh. And I actually, I saw a, a bit of it, and I think he did a good job, like, delineating, like, his nit the nitpicky criticisms while at least acknowledging that you know there's some decent points he made but then like i think when pl- he announced his revenge of the sith review it made it seem like there was this guy who wrote this 100 page article saying you didn't get anything he's like what i don't want to hear it like he didn't even bother engaging with what the guy actually wrote right <laughs> that that's kind of cowardly maybe i'll read that sometime i'd be interested yeah and then i think the next part he complains about is how like the whole space prophecy of like vader being of anakin being the chosen one how that wasn't in the original trilogy like i kind of get what he's saying in that like there's no real indication if you just watch four five and six that darth vader was somebody of like grand significance like we know he was a fallen jedi but that doesn't mean he was somebody of huge importance to the galaxy but at the same time, like you could, I could argue that like being the chosen one thing, one it kind of does subvert the whole Christ like narrative in a way, which you can give credit to Lucas. But at the same time, a chosen one prophecy is kind of a hackneyed idea, and like it's just sort of a trope sure. that can give pretentious stuff. So I would say it's a mixed bag, but I don't think it like automatically destroys the purpose of Darth Vader or the trajectory of the franchise. No, and and also like in universe it doesn't really make like 
not to be a plot logic guy, but why would anybody mention the Chosen One prophecy in the original trilogy? Because obviously Obi-Wan and Yoda would think that it, w- it was a bust, right? Yeah. Because he turned to the dark side. Like, why would, why would anybody... It makes sense that it's not mentioned, because according to anybody who would know about it, like, it didn't come true. So, you know, it wouldn't exist. Like, or hell, maybe they did believe it was true, but they Anakin clearly wasn't it to them. You know, like, there's yeah, no ways yeah. you, can, you can go with it. Hell, maybe they think Luke yeah. is, but they don't want to tell Luke that he's the chosen one. <laughs> yeah, you're right, exactly. This is the thing with many plot nitpicks. There's always, almost always ways you can go to rationalize them and move on. Like, there's ways to solve them. You don't have to get hung up on most of them, you know. Yeah, I think he just, he tries to make this weird comparison to Citizen Kane. Thing. Yeah. Which is, because yes. it's like, yeah, I guess it's a tragic tale. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to claim Revenge of the Sith is like on par with Citizen Kane, but he doesn't really explain why Revenge of the Sith fails as like a tragedy in a significant way on its own. No, I did. I think he, yeah, what did he say? It was like the character wasn't believable or something like that. Like, I didn't quite get wh- why he brought up the comparison besides some surface-level qualities and in, in why he was complaining about Revenge of the Sith. That whole part was confusing to me, w- w- which is weird because it's so long. It's a pretty significant chunk he dedicates to that. Uh, I don't quite get where he was coming from. I think he tries to say that Anakin doesn't feel like a real person and that we never know him as a person. I don't really get that. Like, he's like, all we know about is why Anakin's angry. But again, it's like the thing where it's like he says about Qui-Gon and like Padme. They clearly do things that show character, but to him, they can't have character. And it kind of feels like he's doing that in a more muted form with Anakin here. Yeah, exactly. Like, his dysfunction is such a major part of his character and, and part of the entire plot of this trilogy. Like, you know, you know that that's his character. It's, it's a major part of his character and it's shown throughout the whole thing. I, I, under, I feel like I understand Anakin, like him or not as a character, you know. I, I feel like I understand him perfectly well. Yeah, same. And then he goes on about, like, the, like I said, like, the odd contradiction of him bitching about the spectacle while then complaining about just the more classical like staging of scenes of like dialogue scenes yeah and it just goes on and on and then it's like the worst part is he's like this movie has boring and predictable editing it's like well editing is kind of supposed to be invisible mike like it's not something you're supposed to notice especially (laughs) in something like this the worst part about that was i thankfully i didn't make you watch the fucking sardonicast people you know ymas and uh oh, no <laughs> yeah i didn't make you yeah. watch them talk about the fucking i don't things. like star i can't do a good ymas i was trying to... yeah no, i hate I, star wars i remember like uh ralph the movie maker they're just talking about revenge of the sith ralph the movie maker is like the editing it's just so boring it's like you wouldn't have fucking said that unless plank gets said it like you fucking hacks like god like this is just such a poisonous kind of thing in so many ways yeah, yeah, I do like it. One of the parts I do like of, of the next review we're talking about is him complaining about Chris, about Chris Stuckman not understanding the 180-degree rule when he complains <laughs> about the Padres. That's a pretty funny bit. Like, yeah, these people just don't seem to understand the, the basics of movie making that even I understand as, as, you know, a guy who only took first-year film. Yeah, anyway, I think to wrap up our conclusions on Mr. Plinkett and Mike Stoklos's 
reviews, I think on the whole, well, sure, some good points are sprinkled through in there, but they're so few and far between and just, just filled with the rest of this petty, kind of entitled, nitpicky, headcanon bullshit. It's just not even really worth it, and the presentation doesn't help either. No, there's just be- better video essays these days. You know, they, they they were I guess they broke new ground, so to speak, uh, <laughs> back in the day. But uh, you don't need to go back to them. There's nothing. There's not much of value. You've heard these arguments before. Don't sit through all this bullshit for the the small nuggets of good stuff. Yeah, and all right. So I guess that means we can get into the apologetics video. I feel like this might take not as long. But you never know how these things go. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I guess they these ones have yeah they have less main points. Yeah, they're more elaborating on uh, their points. So so this one. So are, are we doing the Worley first? Would you say? Yeah, because I the, think style is substance. Kind of references Worley's stuff. So I guess we'll. Sure. So so I guess I would say. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this guy, but I, I would say like I like like one of his overall points, I guess, which is that um, you know a lot of online film reviewers don't seriously kind of engage with film in terms of film history and filmmaking techniques and and how these things like metatextually sort of interlink. Like they only look at it as an isolated thing and act sort of as movie producers saying what they would do you know, to fix a movie without thinking about how, you know, the intention of the creator and how it all intersects. But also, yeah, I found him a little smug. Same. And, and I found, uh, yeah, I found him a little, yeah, very smug and, and also overly reliant on inter- intertextuality, like you alluded to, I think, way earlier. Like, he seems to think that just because a shot references another shot and that slightly compounds the meaning of that individual shot, that that makes the film good. That, you know, that it's it, it's intertextual, you know, that that, that, that makes it good. And, and like Stiles Substance says, he seems to have this sort of you know, individualistic sort of liberal humanist view of 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 the individual genius. You know, crafting these references to film history and creating this individual work that's automatically good because it knows about other works. You know, he, he <laughs> I, I, maybe he is a good guy, but he he came across like a bit of a dick to me in this video. Maybe that's a bit mean. I think I pretty much agree on all these points, as well as what style is substance had to say. It honestly kind of reminds me, especially when he said how, like he said, I think he puts too much stock in Lucas's supposed intent when crafting, crafting these things. And also, like, it reminds me kind of of when, uh, well, one, the other thing is like the whole, because something is intricate in design, that automatically equates to something of high quality. Like, I agree, that's very much a fallacious thing to to claim mm-hmm. it reminds me like just in literature like say in literature studies this might seem like an odd thing but like people who like love james joyce's later works like you know yeah. ulysses yeah. or finnegan's yeah. wake or like gravity's right. rainbow by thomas pinchon sure. how they just endlessly yeah. pour over all these in jokes and like literary references when like but Anything that could actually make a compelling literary experience, aside from these like little semantic and like Easter egg type games, like they can't really explain to somebody on the outside. And I think Worley, that's where he fails here. It just becomes like this kind of spot, like the reference Easter egg, and then proclaim Lucas's genius and don't even like act like 
you need to defend like the other things people criticize from because these things speak for themselves. I think that's his, like his biggest failing. Yeah, it's very it's yeah, it's very elitist in that way. He seems to be thinking not only that that this is the not only is this a view he takes, but it, this is like the objective view people should take of art. Like people need to 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 have an education in art history to understand these references because if they don't understand these references, they don't understand why this singular work of the genius George Lucas is actually genius. You know, and I obviously appreciate some rehabilitation of of George Lucas's image. You know, he I think he's been abused by dumbass fans for far too long, but. <laughs> The, 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 this is like deifying him in a very strange way, in a very strangely specific way that I don't think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think another thing with the references is that I think because like Lucas started off more as a visual kind of experimental uh, filmmaker, he does like rely on these shorthand references, like both Rick Worley and Style of Substance uh, kind of talk about how he used uh, Metropolis as like the set as the sort of the template for Coruscant. And I mentioned how Metropolis also has like this bright, shining, futurist city, but it's like, you know, there's the oppressed class underneath. And they say like how you can draw those conclusions by knowing that it's a reference to Metropolis. But the thing is like, there's no real exploration of like an oppression of an underclass in the prequels. So like, it kind of feels like that's almost a weakness in Lucas is like, him relying on these visual shorthand references than really developing things on his own. And that's kind of just refuting these people on their own turf and their arguments. No, no, I, I absolutely agree. That's what I was thinking when I was going through, you know, both this video and the next video, you know, I, I kept thinking in a lot of cases, like, so what? Like, so you're pointing at these individual moments of intertextuality. Like, what does this add up to? Like, you need to give me a broader argument about, you know, how this all coheres into the, the bigger themes of the, the movies. But they never really get there. They talk about individual moments, but they don't quite get there. I, I will say, though, in one respect, uh, you know, I like him pointing out these examples of intertextuality in terms of how, you know, Lucas sometimes chooses... Uh, you know, surface level things that string together the plot th that might just be visual homages to other things that, that people like Plinkett take as plot holes when they're just sort of ignorant of film history, like, you know, the, the worms coming through the curtains, like him pointing out that that's a reference to spy movies or Yoda pulling out the lightsaber as a reference to westerns. Like, it, those are just, you know, visual homages that don't have to, you know, th they don't necessarily have to conform to a strictly logical world, you know. Uh, so I, I did appreciate him defending those cho particular choices, but a lot of the time, you know, his reliance on the meta text uh, di didn't do much for me. Yeah, so, some of those references, too, that he makes are just kind of really scraping things. Like, I think there was a sh experimental film. I forget if it was one that Lucas either made or one that Lucas said, like, influenced him. It used the song. I forget the name of the the song but it has the lyrics like all my life like they're that's part of the lyrics of the song and he mentions when anakin first meets padme and anakin says uh, she's like oh you're a pilot and she's like yep all my life like that has to be like a specific reference to some experimental film like all my life that's such a like 
generic thing like that anybody could have fucking written that <laughs> no, no i agree i agreed i wrote that in my notes like uh i didn't write down specific examples but yeah I, I definitely did think some of them seemed a little a little tenuous at best or like how uh was it how thx 1138 appears as like the like the dealer plate on a car in American Graffiti, or how like the number even shows up, I think on like a droid or something in Attack of the Clones. Like that's just Easter egg stuff. Yeah, man. come on, he's just referencing his older movies. Tons of people do that. Are you going to see the MTU has <laughs> this deep system of references that 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 you know Pixar movies do because they include stuff from their past movies? Like people just like to throw in Easter eggs. The worst part is also in this video when he says like. You may not like these films because Luca, you know, they may not be to your taste. You know, what you can't deny is that they're intricate, massive works of art that reference everything from avant-garde films and silent films. And it's kind of like, it's odd because like there's sort of this anti-objectivist thing. I think style of substance has, but yet they make these like really objective claims and yet they shoehorn any like negative criticism away maybe that's more like warley rather than style as substance is guilty of yeah i guess I, I i can see that in a bit of style as substance too but that's really warley's attitude yeah he's like you know <laughs> yeah you can't deny this is undeniable uh, that, that this is a masterpiece due to this extremely specific criteria i have for what makes a good movie you know he's almost as he's almost as stubborn as plinket but just in a different way well, they both of them bring up like a more genuine like look at how Lucas uses certain poetic or like you know m recurring motifs throughout the saga. But my problem is is like they act like characters saying no is like some or like I've got a bad feeling about this. Like that like that's like brilliant poetry that just that gets repeated. Like poetry isn't just rhymes, man. <laughs> like the individual yeah. pieces have to work to get have to work on their own and together. Yeah, exactly. Like there is legitimate examples. We've already talked about them. Like the different throne room scenes with Duco and Anakin and Vader and Luke that actually like like they have meaning due to their, you know, links to each other but just because there's two things that happen twice doesn't automatically mean that, that that they gain significance you know motifs are supposed to accrue meaning as they repeat but that doesn't necessarily happen all the time with star wars movies yeah and also like some of the dialogue i think the reason why like you hear phrases repeated is just because lucas has a limited screenwriting ability and he's working within this a kind of model okay like that sounded mean but like you know what i mean he admits he's not yeah. he has limited ability at dialogue and a lot of the phrases that get repeated in star wars like you know like destiny or like i don't believe you and all these things that they say like they're just kind of stock melodrama yeah, yeah. phrasing that you would hear in a lot of like these kind of space operas or like these fantasy melodrama stories like they're not so like unique to lucas's imagination that he would repeat them they're just pretty common yeah. stuff yeah just mythological stuff basic yeah basic building blocks you can point out that like they like to point out the color symbolism of how like you know palpatine first wears blue and then he uh is wearing the reds and then the color gets drained from him but again like color symbolism is just sort of a common thing too and it can kind of like, it yeah. can kind of like stave off somebody from actually doing the better work of brain of actually writing a good character i'm not saying that's the case with yeah. palpatine but they act like that's the core of why it works when it really doesn't 
Oh, totally. Yeah, it's so basic. Like I was thinking that too. Like costuming to signify character is not is not like significant. It's like that. That's the the job of a good costume designer. You know, like that's supposed to happen. It's like that's working as intended. I, I'm not sure that's like a special element of the prequel trilogy to me. I don't know. Some of this stuff seems basic as fuck to me. Well, it's cool that like he can reference these ideas that these internet types just would complain about and you know just toss off like yeah. lucas is an idiot when it's clear they don't even understand what template he's working from i'll say like lineage of ideas like that's stand that's just what artists do they take things that influence them and they spin them in new ways it just so happens that star wars is a collage of a, a shit ton of things that influenced lucas but he's not like i wouldn't say that makes tarantino a genius either yeah yeah, I would say formally, like, there's not many people like Lucas. Like, there's not, there's just not much like the prequel trilogy, no matter what you think of them. So I guess they're unique in that regard. But, like, the building blocks of them aren't unique, you know. It's just the way, that, the specific way he he put everything in a blender and threw it together. There, like, there's really nothing like it kind of thing. I think another area where Worley fails is that... I don't think, like, as critics or analysts, you should see, like, everything. The goal is shouldn't be to see everything in a work because, you know, humans are, you know, we're limited in our ways, right? But I think what a good critic, they need to see essentially and intelligently and constantly do so. But I feel like Worley doesn't get that. It just becomes, if you don't understand all these references that I understand and all these potential links that I'm kind of tenuously straining, that means you just don't even have anything to say about it. Like that's kind of the attitude. Yeah. He has. Yeah. He's really just a, comes across like an elitist cunt who, who thinks he's better than other people do. <laughs> how, how many, how many movies he's watched, which, which like, I, I will agree that with him though, that, that the good purpose of a critic should be to prod you into thinking about stuff in a different way. Like it shouldn't be to confirm your bias. And he is right that a lot of YouTube film stuff is just fanboys watching videos to jerk each other off over having the right opinions on, uh, on movies. Like I, I don't really like, I feel like I can formula. I'm not saying I'm unique or impressive in this regard, but I feel like I know what I like in a movie generally. Like I don't go to critics to, to know whether or not I should like a movie. I go to them to maybe get a new perspective on something to think about it in a different way. Like, I think that's the purpose of a good critic is to make you or prod you into reading a text differently. And I think he, he's right about like the state of like my big take with this video is that it would be a good video if it was a video about the state of YouTube film criticism, as long as he didn't bring his elitist shit into it. But 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 at the same time, like I don't get why it's about Star Wars, like the prequel trilogy. Like he he didn't have to use this as his subject kind of thing. Like he could have talked about any other movie when talking about why Chris Stuckman isn't a very good critic, you know. That would have been a better video to me, personally. At that point, like you said, of a critic more broadening your view of something as opposed to just, like, blindly agreeing with them. I agree with, but... And I think I don't think you can say that about nearly any, like, popular YouTube critic, especially the Chris Stuckman types. They're all pretty vanilla. And I think Chris Stuckman is just somebody who... He wants to be seen as the guy who has the best opinion rather than giving his own actual insights into things. And yeah. it's especially shown by the way he just cribs things from Red Letter Media's review. I'm thinking, I think he does a good job at showing 
why Chris Stuckman just is not a good critic in his own right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very cut up, but but nonetheless, I think it comes through. Yeah, Chris Stuckman, like I haven't watched a lot of his stuff, but it always feels like a by committee opinion. Like I, I've never seen like a hot take from Chris Stuckman. He doesn't have any like contrarian opinions. Not that you have to be a contrarian, but I feel like if in the process of cultivating individual taste, most people come up with opinions on movies or whatever that are like not popular. But he always seems to have like the consensus opinion. On everything. I like the point he mentions how, like, I think you even said this earlier that you kind of like red letter media when they talk about things that they're, they clearly have a passion about. Like when Mike talks about Star Trek or, you know, when Jay talks about horror films or even like sometimes when he's talking about, like, say, more weird stuff, like, say, a David Lynch project or something. But mm-hmm. he's right to say that Mike and Jay aren't people who, like, are deep into film history. Like, Jay. Bauman is more into it than Mike, but both of them are people with very specific kind of niche pop cultural interests. They're not people like with a deep knowledge of film history, which they don't have. They don't have to be, but like Mike specifically is someone who has this acts like he's this authority on like what to police like filmmakers like George Lucas into making the film. So I do agree with him on that point. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he did. He did a good job of taking. YouTube critics to task as people who feel like they know better than the filmmakers are critiquing without really knowing that much about film more generally. It's just the way he comes across as a little dickish and some of his points about the prequels specifically are a little stupid, but you know. I like the part when he does critique Patrick Willems when Willems just says, like, blatantly gets things wrong. Yeah, like he says there's no crash zooms when there's like multiple (laughs) examples of it in like one scene (laughs) and attack of the clones uh and then yeah yeah. and claims like lucas's decisions just suck just because they're not like most of his like camera choices aren't flashy when lucas says though that like he shoots the things like documentaries i feel that's kind of hollow like i would say like Star Wars is more like classical Hollywood cinema and the way it's shot and put together. Like it's not it doesn't yeah. feel like documentary to me, but Wally just takes him at his word like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was a strange point to make as well. I was trying to come up with visual examples in my head when he said that of Star Wars as documentary, finding any links there, but yeah, no. Uh, yeah, it was very strange. But I, I agree, Ari Patrick Williams. I remember seeing that video and being like, oh, you think the way that George Lucas changed the camera work each movie specifically conforms to how you'd rank the Star Wars movies? Isn't that a weird coincidence? You know, yeah. It just seems so arbitrary. It seems like he was looking for... He, he had already drawn his conclusion and he was looking for arbitrary examples to suit it. So, yeah, I agree. I, I'm glad he took him to task on that. Yeah, I also don't agree. Just some of the this may not be so specific to what he says about the prequels, but like he he talks about the idea of pure cinema, which I find is just something that like a lot of these idealist types just sort of jerk off over. When I think cinema really is just sort of a, a conglomerate, not conglomerate in the corporate sense, but it's an art form that draws upon the other art forms to create its own identity and uses strengths from other things. Like I don't think there's very few examples of like where something that's like pure cinema becomes like truly great cinema. Like maybe some of Terrence Malick's scenes or obviously some silent films, but I don't think like, I also don't buy that Lucas is so amazing visually that he attains, attains this level. I also hate the part when Worley 
plays scenes from them in different languages and claims they have the same power. Well, it's like, we only know that because we don't hear some of the lame line delivery and we know the context. So it's like willful obfuscation. It's weird. Yeah. That's a weird example. You'd have, you would have had to have never seen the scenes before for that example to work. Yeah. I I thought that was a little strange. I think we've summarized most of the problems we have with Worley's stuff, even if like there's some good Mm. things to take away from it. Just his general attitude is kind of, a little repellent if you ask me <laughs> no I, I totally agree yeah not a guy I'd, I'd watch other videos from i don't think yeah i will conclude this with style as substance i think this video is better than Worley's. like i think they actually try to like get into the more fundamental stuff about why say the phantom menace and the prequels should be evaluated but i think they dropped the ball uh, on certain parts but we'll we'll get into that Oh, yeah, I, I would agree with all that, but yeah, we'll get into it too. Yeah, yeah. I do think that, well, first he starts and ends by saying that, like, the Star Wars prequels are not soulless corporate products, and I would agree with that. They're certainly a unique expression of this artist's vision that are kind of is like kind of an anomaly, like they said, like something of this big blockbuster scale, like, and that it's helmed by somebody with such this distinct vision is unique. But that, again, that doesn't mean that, like, it's equate to quality like he says like you know just simply making the thing you want to make and then just calling it like that does not that's not like serious criticism that's almost kind of patronizing i feel to artists exactly yeah at the very least yeah they seem to simply be stating that these are the facts that that george lucas created this this intricate film that that existed on its own term they did they 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 didn't necessarily say that it means he's this he's this you know exalted genius like like worley did kind of thing they seem to less be less interested in 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 statements of quality and and we're just more generally examining the uh, what goes on under the hood of these movies which i think is is a better approach I think it's a fine approach, but I wish they just didn't claim like this was criticism. Like this is more like scholarly exegesis of of something than criticism. Like I think criticism is you should have like standards and like a way to assess things on their own terms. But I don't think style as substance really has that. Like they that's part of my problem is that they kind of say like well he takes Worley to task rightly for some of his his faults like i feel like but what are your like kind of critical standards like you don't really they don't really fall you can fall back on the subjective thing all you want but again that's kind of like a cop-out i feel yeah no i agree like like i think it's a good like a uh, general rundown of the themes but again like i was saying before that the so what question kind of remains unanswered like i don't think i don't think they ever tie all of these threads together into a single unifying a single unifying evaluation of these movies kind of thing like they don't say how all these themes and all these character acts intersect and sort of bounce off one another it, the the essay also sort of gets lost in the weeds a little bit sometimes you know it, it'll just randomly jump to different topics that don't fully circle back to one another like the sort of a racial stuff they get into at the end of the essay sort of uh, i mean it, it, not that it's an un, unworthy topic of discussion but it doesn't totally i didn't find it totally followed from the previous things they were talking about or informed the previous things they were talking about or or built up to a thesis or anything like that if the video overall feels kind of rambly to me is the overall adjective i would use for 
I would agree. Despite the fact that they put it in like these structures and such, it does just feel like one long rambling thing. Like there's no unifying point to it, especially when you get to the end and they're like, well, my whole thing was like a neutral, uh, like, like just sort of like you said, like analysis of what's going on. But so, but then it becomes like, okay, so like what was there to gain from that other than just observing the film on my own? Yeah. Like it's called prequel apologetics. They should, they should fight for it a little more forcefully, I think, because that's clearly their stance. Like they say, I think at one point they enjoy the movies. Then tell us why. It's got to. It's got to be something to do with the stuff you're talking about. Like this stuff they're talking about must inform their enjoyment in some sense. But they never fully show their cards in that way. They don't really tell us what what it is about these characters and these themes that that they enjoy. Like it doesn't have to be objective. Just tell us what they enjoy. Yeah, like they he said. Like they say that you know the characters are amazing and it's like okay if that's your opinion you can back it up but they just sort of describe the characters they don't really say like how it's good characterization or anything like that it's just sort of a description of it oh yeah totally i I was thinking that like um i've been sort of defending the actions of a lot of these characters in, in when we've been talking about these other reviews like that they do the characters are fleshed out but a lot of the times when they're describing characters in this video it's just pure plot description like dry recollections of the events especially with characters like qui-gon or maul like it's just talking about what they do but you're not talking about the contours of the character really what their emotions are and how they react to different events like you're just you're just you're just sort of recapping the phantom menace like we already know what happens in the movie that's a good point and i thought the same because like well it actually may remind me because plinkett's whole character thing was describe the characters as they are like the personalities and stuff without referring to what they actually do or their roles in the movie and ironically he style of substance kind of falls into plinkett's trap a little bit there because they precisely do what he wasn't asking <laughs> i'm not saying yeah, they fall, they, I'm not they, saying they fall into the trap necessarily but you know it does become like a here's what they do rather than like giving an actual like breakdown of their actual characterization yeah like how that informs like what their ideals are and how that's shown through the plot it's it's just the plot kind of thing there is some good stuff, like the Qui-Gon stuff, I guess. They do give a good accounting of Qui-Gon's ideals, like you talked about earlier. But it's a, it's very much a mixed bag. Like, some of it just is a total flop. Uh, some of it's good. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very grab mix, kind of a very party mix kind of essay. I would say that also, that, like, some of, like, the Obi-Wan stuff, like, like you said, they just account for, like, that... You know, he goes through this and he becomes a little more defiant, but then he just becomes, you know, more dogmatic by Revenge of the Sith. Like, they don't explain why that's a good character arc, and if anything, that that explanation could give way to someone saying that's kind of sloppy characterization. Like, Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of the strength of him is how Ewan McGregor plays him, not necessarily the moment-to-moment mechanics of his character. Well, they start off by saying that, you know, like they debunk the, the saved and the edit thing pretty well, because, like, that is, like, the purpose of editing is that you fix mm-hmm. things. Like, no movie is watchable until it is edited. Like, that's the case for everything. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought that was good. They bring up that George Lucas does have these experimental 
as sensibilities from when he started. But at the same time, I don't think because he started as this like avant-garde filmmaker that makes Star Wars avant-garde. Like Star Wars is quite classical right. in presentation and story, and the most experimental aspect of them being the the special effects, specifically the CGI in the prequels. <laughs> Yeah, like he, they sort of talk about Worley falling too much into odd tour theory, but they sort of fall victim to it a little, a little bit there. You know, they're, they're, just because the odd tour had those sensibilities in the past doesn't mean it's reflected in the movie. Yeah, it's like what I call the Elephant Man in avant-garde film. No, I wouldn't. It's a Hollywood movie. <laughs> yeah. Just because it was made yeah. by David Lynch doesn't make it experimental. Yeah, maybe it has some sequences that are slightly, slightly, you know, avant-garde or Lynchian, but then, you know, there's not a lot of experimental sequences in Star Wars, you know, the prequels that you can point to in the same way. Some of also what uh, they try to say when they bring up the poetic structure of things and like credit to them for like, you know, actually trying to take it on its own terms and like just ridiculing it. But I think one of the points they mm -hmm. try to make is like, you know, at the start of a new hope when Vader and the Empire barge in onto the ship, you know, policing people, they claim that like the Jedi, because the visuals are kind of similar, I guess, the way the smoke comes and the Jedi kind of emerge and fight the droids. Like, they try to imply what the Jedi are doing the same thing as the Empire was in A New Hope. It's like, it's not really the same scenario. Like, they're there to stop an illegal invasion of something by people who are clearly kind of the bad guys. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's not yeah, the same like, thing I, at all. Yeah, you could, you could maybe, maybe say it's like a visual foreshadowing of of the Jedi's sort of complicity in, in uh, you know, not keeping track of, of Sidious and his rise to power, but it, it's it's a big it's a big reach. It, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it passes the smell test for me. One of the other things they try to say is that the the prequels, uh, the way the the original trilogy, they claim that it starts out as relatively dark and mature, and then becomes like light and childish by the end whereas the prequels kind of like go the opposite in that sort of circular narrative form which you know is a valid it's an interesting point but my problem is is that like depicting childhood wonder and innocence isn't the same as being childish and puerile in and of itself and i find a lot of the humor in like phantom menace as well as return of the jedi just become puerile rather than like getting at a good perspective of that whimsy yeah, yeah, it's more of it's more just stuff to made to appeal to little kids. It doesn't really feel like something, you know, from the perspective of a child. It doesn't seem to be, you know, revealing that perspective or anything like that. Yeah, it's just just meant to kid keep the kids in their seats, keep them engaged. Yeah, and also like this review, just like others, try to bring up the moral complexity of the prequels, which obviously there's a little more in them than the original trilogy but at the same time i don't think it's as rich as they like to claim not just like style of substance but others like to claim because i mean palpatine is still a pure evil person it's it's not like he was like somebody with noble intentions who just sort of corrupted and gave into his worst aspects like he's like this pure evil devil figure who's like twisting definitions like it's it's not like Anakin's fall is a little more complex because he's led to his mind is twisted in the morality, but there's clearly something objectively kind of wrong with the dark side and such in the Star Wars universe. 
Yeah, like I think the the real moral complexity lies in like the Jedi's faults and the Jedi's complicity in it. But yeah, you're right. There is an ultimate evil, which I think is okay. But I mean, yeah, they they seem to want to insist that it's more complex than it is. I, I'm okay with there being like moral quandaries related to the Jedi and stuff. But then there's still this actual big evil bad guy who's evil for evil's sake like i think that's a, actually a pretty decent structure to have if you're making a movie that's also supposed to appeal to kids but yeah they seem really resistant to that idea these kinds of apologists yeah no i i agree with that that like the complexity comes more from the jedi stuff but even like they're like you know they kind of some of it is scraping things a little bit like when mace windu comes to fight palpatine and as if it's like this morally like yeah he's obviously bending the code but like there's clearly like in universe there's kind of like at least a justification for what he's doing and it's is for the greater good like it's nowhere even near compare like what the jedi and the sith do isn't comparable really in action even if the jedi like do bend their code and, and like it's flawed in some ways right yeah i guess i shouldn't even say moral more like um yeah ideological complexity compared to the surface level like symbols presented like you know people know jedi as like the guardians of peace or whatever from the original trilogy but they were actually sort of uh stoic to a fault and you know blind to you know the 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 need for to acknowledge you know loss and in in strong emotions and things like that so i guess it's yeah it's not morally complex in that way i should say more like ideologically complex at least to a child you know you know it'd be oh and to somebody like plinkett who can't seem to understand that the Jedi are a little dumb <laughs> you know it's it's confusing to those types but uh, it's not super super complex or anything yeah, but it's like you said, these are films that are very much meant to appeal to a, a universal all ages, so it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be, like, super grand and complex. It just ha it has to be in, in a way that's easily digestible, which it is for most people, uh, except for Plinkett, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. man, man, we're just, like, yeah. roasting. Uh, my remember Mike once said that... Uh, George Lucas has a limited mental focus, a limited intelligence. Oh, yeah. I think we've, uh, I think it's been adequately shown that that could easily be turned on him. <laughs> but that's kind of hard. Yeah, I, I know. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> Poor guy. The racial coding bit that he gets into, like you said, it's a worthwhile thing to talk about. But I also feel like they err a little bit in the. Um, by saying like there's so many different avenues it can go down to like maybe there's a critique of chinese communism and collectivism with the battle droids by using the trade the chinese you know asian trade federation like i find that's like over analytical to the point of kind of vacuousness to yeah. be honest there's it's just after a while like Oakham's razor can just be useful you know <laughs> Yeah, they they both state the obvious. Like we know these movies are employ stereotypes, and they also you know try to justify them or, or or pursue avenues that are totally, totally grasping at straws. Like on the one hand, the section is so obvious that it probably shouldn't even exist. Like we all know this shit. But on the other hand, they they just keep bringing up points that don't seem valid at all. So yeah, it's it's definitely a section I found a little baffling and, and pretty weak. I just don't like how they have to act like there's something more complex there than it actually is. Like it's just a pretty blatant yeah. thing. Yeah, it can be just a fault of the movies or a limitation of George Lucas. Doesn't mean he's a bad guy or anything. It's just you know a limitation in perspective, maybe. 
And I mean, like they even said, it's just that's part of the serials he was drawing from anyway. Like they have those kind of racially or ethnically coded villains <laughs> and stuff in those. And it's just like a like baggage from that kind of influence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everybody's fallible. It's yeah. It's, it's he, he is a human. He's not a god like Worley would maybe argue. He's just a guy, pretty smart guy most of the time. But he's George Lucas is just a dude. I also don't like how style of substance does kind of get a little bit smug when he states that like I don't get how people don't realize that the acting and line delivery is meant to call back to old Hollywoods and soap operas. Like as if that just absolves it of any criticism. Yeah. Like I mean, that that yeah. acting style can still be done good or bad. Yeah, like it's 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 not. Yeah, we've both seen plenty of older Hollywood movies, and I wouldn't even. I don't know. I don't think it's a very precise emulation of that style. Like there's a lot. You know, the, the, you you can still be passionate and in more more multifaceted delivering lines in that manner. You know. I don't think Sunset Boulevard, you know, has acting quite on the same <laughs> register as Attack of the Clones, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel exact, even if that was George Lucas's intention. Again, that's falling back on our tour theory maybe a little too much. I'm glad they at least didn't try to go down the worst route of trying to claim that there was a Brechtian distancing device. I could so see somebody <laughs> trying to make those claims, and it'd be total bullshit, but I guess credit that they didn't do that. Thank God. Yeah, there's got to be somebody. I bet you could find some sort of article somewhere drawing that comparison, but yeah, I'm glad they didn't try. I also just didn't like the the reserve criticism for like the, the racial stereotyping, but I find that's just like an easy thing to take a stance against. Cause it is like, obviously like politically, culturally, socially abhorrent to like own in on like these kind of like insensitive depictions of people. But, and then when they try to actually say like some of the things they didn't like about the movie, like they don't like get into, they don't like even try to defend like the characterizations other than just the blank descriptions uh, that they give, and I also don't like his li their line where he's like, "It's more interesting to explain what a movie was going for than to see if it sucked or rocked." Which is like, but that's kind of the point of criticism. You get ex you, know, you get someone with a good perspective on it; they can explain and explicate. But ultimately, like we like a good critic also has a strong position on something, which I don't feel a style of substance really has. Yeah, they seem to be confusing like academic criticism, like looking at the cultural significance and implication of works and like, you know, public criticism, you know, like criticizing a work, yeah, offering an evaluation on it based on your perspective. Like those are two very different disciplines. They seem to be just talking about two different things. Yeah. I mean those two things can help inform each other, but ultimately their goals right. aren't aren't the same. Yeah. I also don't yeah. like at the end when he puts up images of Rob Zombie, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, and Zack Snyder as directors who make the movies they want to make, but, you know, get uh, get unnecessarily necessary yeah. hate. Uh, we don't need to get into that, but... Uh, <laughs> Hallo Remember when we watched the Halloween movies? Oh, fuck The Halloween yeah. duology? Fuck God. yeah. <laughs> Talk about poetry, man. <laughs> oh, man. These uh, were the days. And also, like, the point he makes, they make at the end when they say, like, I think calling Star Wars high art and, like, the high and low art distinction, like, that's a form of anti-intellectualism, which 
I agree that it's elitist, and I think like calling something highbrow or lowbrow, like I, I could use it as more of a description than say of something of quality. Like something that mm-hmm. has a highbrow kind of appeal can be bad, and something that's like lowbrow can, can still be good. But I would also claim that if you act as if like all pieces of art and media are of the same standing, no matter how brainless or tasteless things can get. I feel like that kind of becomes itself a bit of an anti-intellectual stance, to be honest. Yeah, again, that's like taking an opinion from literary, like, you know, academic criticism. Like, just because all texts can be read, you know, and and, uh, information can be gleaned from them doesn't mean they're all equal critically. You know, as a critic, you shouldn't adopt that stance, I don't think. Yeah, I I find that comes up more in, like, say, film like types like this rather than literary circles like literary circles and such i think even though like there is a bit of that like i think there's more of a demand i guess for an immediate position of standards Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's true yeah but i think anyway that wraps up our uh uh, our talk of this it's interesting with the prequels well they do like deepen star wars in a lot of ways it's almost more interesting to see the wild reactions that they've gotten from yeah. people, both like on the sides of the spectrum. And I think there just needs to be, I don't know, there, there should be like a balancing act, I think, between. And this maybe is kind of like this, but this is us more commenting on the specific commentary than actual reviews of the films, per se. Still, though, I, th- I think you're totally right. They're a very bizarre Rorschach test. People should just calm down about them. Like, they they could be something, they don't have to be masterpieces or, or irredeemable pieces of shit. They can just be interesting blockbusters. I think that that's it. It's just that people can make so much caveats for them, like, but yet they're hindered by so much baggage. Like, just like the serials they draw from, the limits of the dialogue and performances and whatnot, that, like, calling them masterpieces just seems like a big stretch, even as these people acknowledge these may acknowledge these shortcomings but at the same time like they're not films that they're not like just incoherent unintelligible films the way like the plinkets of the world will have them and and the apologists do have it right that there is a degree of entitlement mostly that comes from people who just endlessly hate these movies absolutely yeah yeah i don't think there's a whole lot left to add i think we set our piece it's been a long long time hopefully let's edit this down and Maybe one day we'll talk about something similar, but you know, thanks for uh, thanks yeah. for coming on again, Brenton. This is fun. No worries. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for inviting me again. All right. Until next time, if there is a next time, I'll see y'all.